What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Malari. So I haven't been in the studio for about a week now. I haven't really recorded anything in a week, so there's a lot to catch up on. Uh, so tonight will be a busy episode. I've had a busy week of finals. Uh, a lot of essays to write, not many exams. I have an exam Friday, but a lot of papers to write. Two out of four done, almost three out of four done with an econ paper I have due Friday for a group project. Then I have another one due tomorrow, a theology paper. So I've been busy keeping up with all of that. So it's been tough to try to record an episode of the last week, although there's a lot to talk about in all the sports. Uh, one thing I want to do start out with, though, is I want to say that my condolences are with the whole entire Leach family. Mike Leach, the head football coach at Mississippi State, unfortunately suffered a massive heart attack over the weekend and lost his life. And I just want to say my thoughts and prayers with Mike Leach and his whole family. Uh, if you know if you know Leach, if you don't know Leach, uh, he was an absolute legend in all of college football. And honestly, one of the most entertaining and most colorful coaches in all of sports. He was bigger than life, had a huge personality, um, and was such a great football coach as well. I mean, he was a lot bigger than just a football coach. I said he was bigger than life. Uh, two-time college football coach of the year. Always had funny answers to every single question. He got asked in a press conference, had great catch lines as well. Um, it's just really unfortunate seeing him uh, pass away. Truly, as I said, he's a legend, uh, not just in college football, but all the sports. He was a great coach, 158 and 107 record. Overall, as a head coach of college football, 8-9 record in bowl games. Uh, it was 8-4 and four this past year for Mississippi State as the head coach. Uh, was also at Washington State for some years as well before he took the job at Mississippi State. Uh, during the Gardner Minshew days, he was there at Washington State. And one interesting thing that I just found out was that Lincoln Riley went up to him, which Lincoln Riley, the head coach now at USC, was head coach of Oklahoma for years as well. When Mike, Luke, Mike Leach was the coach of Lincoln Riley, this comes from a tweet online, Leach told one of his players that he wasn't going to play probably at all, but that he'd like to have them as an assistant coach, like a student coach, like a grad role type of thing where you're an assistant coach, student assistant. The kid got upset, left the office, came back the next day and took the job. That guy ends up being Lincoln Riley, one of the best head football coaches in all college football. So obviously he's had a great uh, head coaching tree, a lot of guys uh, connected to him and obviously a tough loss uh, for all college football and sports in general, as I said. Uh, he was a great coach, but also just much bigger than that as well. Uh, the energy he brought was just electric. And I think college football is not the same without him uh, at the end of the day. And there's one clip I want to make sure I talk about that I want to mention, but unfortunately I have to send it to my computer. So just give me one second here while I get that uh, set away. But huge loss, as I said, for all college football. There's just something about him. The energy that he brought was just different than any other coach I've ever seen. He always had great answers to everything he said. was funny. Always gave life advice to the players. And all the players, obviously, are... Uh, very obviously down with his loss and a lot of former players too are tweeting about it and stuff and how much he meant to them and uh, it's obviously not the same without him and I'm going to play a clip right now that came from the locker room after one of their wins uh, over the years at Mississippi State he had a great quote uh, that he told the locker room that I want to mention I want to show so this comes from Mississippi State's uh, football Instagram account So that you guys, I mean, listen, everybody here, even if you play scout team, you did something to beat these guys. It takes all week to beat somebody. It takes an entire week to beat somebody. We didn't just beat them today. We beat them all week long. Never forget that. Mike, I'm just wondering. And that was a great quote right there. I really liked the part that he said, you know, we took all week long to beat that team. He didn't just beat them on the field today. We beat them all week in practice, and everyone contributed, whether you're a scout team player or a backup quarterback a backup long snapper, a starting corner, starting safety, the quarterback, the wideout, a freshman that just walked on the team, didn't even play. Everyone contributes to a win. At the end of the day, that's a great message to tell the locker room after a big win. So 
college football will not be the same without Mike Leach, and his legacy will live on forever. And I just saw that he had a 59.7% win percentage in his career, which is very impressive. But in order to get into the College Football Hall of Fame, you need a 60% win percentage. And I think at the end of the day, he should be in there no matter what his record was because how great of a coach he was and how great of a person he was as well. As I said, he's much bigger than football and was just much bigger than life in general. And uh, it's a big loss in all college sports. So, Mike, my thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. And thank you for everything you did for all college football. I was always a fan of him. I always thought he was funny. But I never followed too much Mississippi State football since when you're watching SEC football, you're really just watching Georgia and Alabama a lot of the time and Auburn and LSU, but Mississippi State definitely should have got more credit in the years he was there. Uh, but it's such a great coach and obviously a huge loss for all college sports. So now I'm going to move on to baseball. I want to talk about free agency. I'll get into that. Some big name signings have happened over the last day or so now. Uh, then I'll get into some college hockey, talk some BC Northeastern hockey, maybe even get into some NBA Clippers and Celtics. They played a game the other night. I'm going to talk about that game. I think it was the best game the Clippers have played all year. I think it's the best they've looked in probably a year now, or at least a season. Uh, last year, they looked good, but they never had Kawhi Leonard last year. Now you add in a healthy Kawhi Leonard going off, I think it just is a huge difference to that Clippers team. It was also Kawhi Leonard's first time with 25-plus points in a game in 500 days, which is nuts. His first time with 500 points, well, with 20 points, excuse me, in 500 days. I think it was 20 or 25, let me see. First 20-point game for him in 500 days. So not even 25. His first 20-point game... In 500 days. And he missed already 22 games this year around, 22 or 23 games. Uh, has been battling, you know, knee management issues with that knee. They're obviously trying to keep him healthy uh, for the long haul of the season since Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are my best one-two duo in the NBA. I think if they're both on, I think, especially with that Clippers depth, I don't know if anyone's going to beat that team. And that's not just because I'm a Clippers fan. I thought the Clippers had great depth before I was even a fan of them. When they made that run in the Western Conference Finals a few years ago, I liked that bench. I was never a huge fan as I am now, but I always liked Paul George. I'd follow him a little bit. I like Kawhi as well. I mean, my fantasy basketball line of the 2019 freshman year, I drafted Kawhi and Paul George, and they sat out every single night, just about every other night, due to load management, and they were just trying to get ready for the playoffs, even in you know October, the first part of the season. And that was a tough stretch, but I've been, I've been a fan of them for the long haul. I like them both teaming up in L.A., and it started out with Paul George, and I'm just a fan of the whole team. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, obviously the start. But then you look at other guys, Terrence Mann, Reggie Jackson, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, Nick Batum, Luke Kennard, Amir Coffey. It goes deeper than that. Avica Zubats. I mean, it's deeper than just Paul George. I love the whole team now. It's not just one guy. Reggie Jackson's a big part of that as well, former BC Eagle. But it's bigger than just one guy, uh, and I love the whole team. So huge win the other night for them against the Celtics. I'll get into that game, recap what happened there. Celtics had a crazy game last night against the Los Angeles Lakers. Got a win, ended up almost blowing a huge lead. I mean, they blew it, but ended up still getting a win. So as long as you win at the end of the day, that's all that matters. But the Celtics nearly had a huge collapse. Uh, they did suffer the collapse and ended up still getting a win. So it could have been worse, obviously. But tough game for them almost. They get the win, though, and that's all that matters. And then I'll talk a little bit about college basketball as well. Talk about BC basketball. They had a win yesterday with Stonehill. Talk a little UMaine basketball as well. What's going on there? Uh, UMaine is a big game a week from tonight. They'll be playing around this time next Wednesday night at Ohio State. Number 23 in the country is Ohio State. It's a big game for UMaine. I think UMaine's going to be in that game. I liked UMaine when they played BC. I like UMaine in that game as well. And at some point in this episode, hopefully I'm going to have the sports guru Mike Curley come on. And then the encyclopedia, the sports historian, Paul from Southie, come on as well. So it should be a good episode tonight. Hope you guys enjoy it. I'm going to start out, as I said, talking some baseball. So Xander Bogats goes to the Padres. 11 years, $280 million. I recapped this on my podcast last week. Obviously, losing Xander is not what the Red Sox wanted. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But then I'm sure, to a degree, you want to bring him back, maybe not to the money that he wanted. And when you lose him, 
At the end of the day, now you have a huge hole. Who's going to be a shortstop? Yes, Trevor Story can jump from second base to shortstop. That's probably the plan. That's probably that's probably what the plan was the whole time. The plan probably the whole time they signed Trevor Story to that six-year, $140 million deal last year. It's probably, okay, Xander might walk next year when he opts out of his last year of his contract. Let's take Trevor Story, put him at second base, throw him over at shortstop next year. That could have been part of the plan. But here's the thing. Now who plays second base? Oh, you can move Kike Hernandez from center field to second. Okay, great. Then who's playing center? I mean, now the Red Sox are playing a game of tic-tac-toe trying to figure out, figure out a way that they can really get their lineup figured out. And that's the problem. I think at the end of the day, the Red Sox find themselves in a, in a struggle now of trying to compete. I mean, you look at it, the, the whole division got better. And the Yankees got Aaron Judge, Aaron Judge back, nine years, $360 million, got the money that he wanted, got the money he deserved after a huge year. The Blue Jays had a good year last year. The Rays had a good year last year. And the Orioles were right on the cusp of making the playoffs. So if you look at it, the Red Sox, the only team in this division that hasn't been making moves to, to you know, make progress. And the one signing or two signings they've made, two bigger ones, I guess, Kenley Jansen, closer for the Braves last year, comes over to the Red Sox, two years, $32 million, was actually the leader in the NL last year in saves. Uh, very impressive year for him last year. I think at the end of the day, you obviously need bullpen help. Not bad getting him uh, in a Red Sox uniform. 41 saves last year for the Braves. Coming over two years, $32 million. He's recorded at least 30 saves in each of the last eight full seasons. That comes from MLB.com from 2014 to 2019. And then in 2021 and 2022, he had 30-plus saves in all eight of those seasons. Had 40 or more in 2014, 2016, 2017, including 41 in 2022, which, as I said, was number one in the NL. And if you look at it, he actually was second in all of baseball last year in saves to Emmanuel Classe, who led the uh, Cleveland Guardians with 42 saves. But very impressive year last year. Uh, therefore, Jansen in 65 appearances, 5-2 record, 3.38 ERA, 24 earned runs and 64 innings pitched with a 1.05 whip, a 192 opponent batting average, 85 strikeouts and 22 walks. In his last 11 games of the regular season, he had an 8-for-8 eight eight save opportunity uh, percentage, so 100% save percentage during his last 8 save opportunities with a .82 ERA, 1 earned run and 11 innings pitched. And that comes from MLB.com article here, uh, all those stats. But very impressive there, considering the Red Sox needed a bullpen guy and needed a guy that can close the game. The Red Sox last year were one of the worst in Major League Baseball in blown saves. And let me see if I can get that statistic. Last year, the Red Sox in, let me see here. I want to make sure I get it right. 28 saves, 28 blown saves, and 65 save opportunities last year the Red Sox had. 28 save opportunities were lost on blown saves. 28 out of 65. So the Red Sox obviously needed uh, to get something to happen there. They had to make a change. And uh, at the end of the day, they end up doing it, thankfully, uh, get a guy that can help them in the bullpen. Uh, but one thing I want to mention with the Red Sox is you obviously lose Xander Bogats. That's a big loss. And then, as I said, you don't really have a replacement for him. And there's other guys you get in the market, but now it's going to be probably a smaller guy. And I think they're probably waiting for Marcelo Mayo, who was the fourth pick of the 2021 MLB draft, and probably Nick York, who was the first-round pick for the Red Sox in 2020 as a second baseman. They're probably waiting for those guys to come up in the next couple of years, but you're really banking on both those guys being superstars when you let Xander Bogats walk. I get it. Xander Bogats, 30 years old. 11 years is a long contract. $280 million is a lot of money, just about $26 million per year. But I think if you look at it, baseball contracts in general, you pay a guy 10 or 11 years just to get them for years one through six, one through seven. Xander Bogats in years seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven is not going to be the same player, but it might be worth it if you can get him years one through six and he wins your World Series. That's why you do it. 
That's why you give a long contract. And one interesting thing I saw is Bogot's 30 years old, gets 11 years, 280 million for the Padres. Carlos Correa, the next guy I want to mention, just got a huge payday yesterday from the San Francisco Giants, which ends up being 13 years, $350 million. Crazy deal for him at the end of the day. He got a three-year, $105 million deal last year from the Minnesota Twins, opted out of it after one year, which people knew he'd probably do, then now gets the fourth largest contract in baseball history with Mike Trout being first, getting $426 million over 12 years, Mookie Betts getting $365 million over 12 years from the Dodgers, Aaron Judge getting $360 million over nine years from the Yankees, and now fourth place is the 28-year-old shortstop, Carlos Correa, getting a huge deal, 13 years, $350 million. And that overall, $350 million, is fourth most in a single contract in MLB history. And I think if you look at it, the Giants have money to spend. They only had $18 million on the books past 2023. Brandon Crawford, their shortstop since 2011, has been struggling. Hit 231 this past year with nine home runs, 52 RBIs. Batting average was 298 in 2021 with 90 RBIs. Last year, it went down to 231. So over two years, from 2021 to 2022, he went from 298 batting average to a 231 batting average with 90 RBIs in 2021 to just 52 this past season. So they were looking for a long-term answer, and that's what they get. Correa, 291 batting average last year, 22 home runs, 64 runs batted in for the Minnesota Twins. And if you look at it, they had the money to spend, and they were all in on an Aaron Judge deal potentially, and I'm sure they looked into some other free agents as well, but they end up going to get Carlos Correa, who ends up being their long-term answer now at shortstop. Last year, the Giants were a 500 record, exactly 81-81. and 81. They had 107 wins, though, in 2021, which is a down year. Obviously, last year, only winning 81 games, so losing uh, 26 more games in 2021, so winning 26 less games uh, than they did in 2021 they did in 2022. So 2022... 26 less games, one for them. So obviously a downfall. And if you look at it, Correa has had a great career over you know the years now. He was the first pick overall in 2012 to the Houston Astros. 26 home runs in 2021 his last year in Houston with a 279 batting average and 92 RBIs. He also has a gold glove as well. Got that in 2021 in Houston. Was an all-star selection in 2021 as well. I think that was the second one. Let me go over his career here just to make sure I get all this down here. But very good player, obviously. At the end of the day, they get their long-term answer there. And over his career, 2017 World Series champion, rookie of the year as well. Two-time All-Star Gold Glove winner and a Platinum Glove winner as well. 22 home runs, 291 batting average, and 834 OPS last year for the Minnesota Twins. Uh, and now this will be his third team in three years, 2021 with Houston, 2022 with Minnesota, and now in 2023, we'll be in San Francisco. The other big shortstop contract, Trey Turner getting 11 years, $300 million from the Philadelphia Phillies, 29 years old. I think Trey Turner was... Arguably my favorite free, arguably the best free agent overall in this whole class. Probably my number one. I'm a big fan of Trey Turner. I think that's a big pickup for the Philadelphia Phillies. A lineup that was already good got even better now. And Trey Turner, when you can add a guy to your lineup that can extend a single into a double or can get a big hit in a big situation, have a great glove on the field at shortstop, you add that. And that's what Dave Dombrowski did. That's why the Phillies last year on opening day when I made my predictions for the World Series, I had Dave Dombrowski and the Phillies going to the World Series last year, losing to the Red Sox which that's crazy. Last year I had the Red Sox making the World Series considering how bad they were. But I had the Phillies making the World Series last year because I saw Dave Dombrowski in there and I said, I know he's going to do good things. And he always does. I mean, he wants to build a team that wants to win. One thing I was comparing though between the shortstops is Turner, Correa, Bogot's got heavy paydays. Next up will be Dansby Swanson from the Braves. I don't think Dansby's that good, but he's probably going to get paid heavy money. I think he's a good player, but maybe not worth the money that Correa got or Turner got. 
Trevor Story last year, though, going to the Red Sox, six years, $140 million at 29 years old, signing that contract. That's huge to the Red Sox. They cut all those contracts in half. Bogat's got 11 years. Correa got 13 years. Turner got 11 years. Trevor Story only got six. So that's pretty impressive with half the money of Bogat's. Bogat's got 11 years, 280. Story got six years, 140. So I guess at the end of the day, at least the Red Sox won't be on the books you know, in year 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 on Xander's, uh, Xander Bogatz's contract. And I knew they probably were going to sign up for that money. And at the end of the day, the Red Sox get their wish, obviously save up money now and probably end up being under the luxury tax like they want. But one thing you got to look at with this Red Sox team is, I know obviously Hyam Bloom is to blame to a degree. I agree. I think Hyam Bloom's to blame. I was never all in on him. I always thought he was good at Finding talent for a smaller market team without coming to the Red Sox and turning, trying to turn us into the Tampa Bay Rays was not going to be the best idea. He's a great mind for the game, though, and obviously I think he works better in a smaller market. I'll say this, though, about him. I'll say this about him. Although I agree, we got Tim Loftus, my family friend here, uh, biggest fan of the show. Thank you for always listening to Tim. Text me right now. We also mentioned Mississippi State in Stockville, Mississippi. Coach Mike Leach, absolute legend, obviously, so... That's a shout-out there uh, to Mississippi State. He said High and Bloom needs to go. I agree. I think High and Bloom's probably gone after this year. But one thing I want to say about him is I, at first, blamed him for trading Mookie Betts. I blamed him. And I said, oh, High and Bloom let Mookie Betts go. At the end of the day, that was in the first year of him being the president of baseball operations for the Red Sox. That was within the first few months. I mean, he traded Mookie in February and got the job in November. So within three months or four months, Mookie Betts was no longer Boston Red Sox. I think that is a management decision. I do not think that's a front office at High and Bloom decision. I think they came in when they gave him the job and they said, hey, we want to be under luxury tax. We're not going to keep Mookie Betts. He doesn't want the 10 years, 300 million we've offered him. Trade him. And maybe it wasn't the deal right away. Maybe the Red Sox actually tried to sign him. They gave him 10 years, 300 million. And maybe in February, John Henry went up to High and Bloom and said, trade him. And he's made a lot of bad decisions, don't get me wrong. And I'm not really defending High and Bloom here on some decisions he's made. It's tough, obviously, being a GM. But I think when we look at some of the decisions he's made, I think some of them are management decisions like ownership decisions, like John Henry and Tom Warner. Warner and Henry, I think it comes down to them. I think they made these decisions to let these guys go. No, maybe not all of them. Mookie Betts, I would agree with. I think they let him go. I think it was their decision. We don't want to give him more than $300 million, so trade him. I don't blame High and Bloom for that. I think he ended up getting a deal that was not as much as he should have got, considering Mookie Betts was arguably the second-best player in baseball at the time to Mike Trout. And you trade him for Alex Verdugo, Connor Wong, and Gita Downs. Wong and Downs really... You know, didn't show too much promise in their games in the majors this past year. Wong's been in the majors for a couple of years now. And then you look at it, Verdugo, I'm a big fan of him. But you probably could have got more back in return for him. But if you look at his resume with the Red Sox, that was obviously a bad move. But I don't blame him for the Mookie Betts decision. I think that was a management decision. I think they came in uh, to that offseason saying, okay, we're going to offer him 300 million, and that's the most we're going to go. If he doesn't want to stay, so be it, trade him. And I think that's what he had to do. So I don't blame Bloom essentially for that move. I think at the end of the day, it was a management decision. But look at some other things, though. Letting Xander Bogots walk for nothing in return, I'd blame him there because I think at the end of the day, you could have traded him at the deadline when the Red Sox were going nowhere. J.D. Martinez, letting him walk for free. You wouldn't have gotten anything crazy back in return for J.D. Martinez, but that Red Sox team was going nowhere at the deadline. You have to trade him. Trading Mookie Betts, obviously a big, big downfall there, but at the end of the day, I do not blame him for that since I think that was a management ownership decision, although I think he should have got more. Trading Benintendi for Franchi Cordero, Josh Winkowski prospects, brutal trade. Brutal trade. I think that is awful. I would blame High and Bloom for that. Yes, you should have got more back for Andrew Benintendi, considering he was an all-star this past year for the Royals. 
didn't re-sign Kyle Schwarber, who he got in the offseason or in the trade deadline in 2021, ended up being a big part of that Red Sox World Series run last year in 2021, uh, almost World Series run, American League Championship run last year, ended up losing to the Houston Astros, but not re-signing Kyle Schwarber was a big loss. 46 home runs last year, leading the National League. Big loss. It's a lot of power they lost in the Red Sox lineup. Considering Xander Bogart's home run numbers went down from 2019, he had 33, to 2021, he had 23, and then in 2022, he only had 15. Bogart's home run numbers went down. The Red Sox needed another power bat in that lineup, especially considering J.D. Martinez is not the hitter he once was either. His other big deal was signing Trevor Story six years, $140 million. Story last year, 16 home runs, 66 RBIs, a 238 batting average in 94 games. Ultimately, you have to make a move, uh, at least spend some of the money that you're saving. I mean, if you're not paying Mookie Betts, at the end of the day, that money's got to go somewhere. If you're not paying Zeta Bogarts, that money's got to go somewhere. If you're not paying Andrew Benatendi, that money has to go somewhere. If you're not paying Kyle Schroeder, that money has to go somewhere. I think that's my problem with the Red Sox. That's my problem with all the sports, a lot of sports teams, baseball specifically in general, though. I just wrote a whole paper on this. I took a business of sports class. Actually, uh, this semester was one of the favorite classes I've taken at BC, and it's right up my alley of what I want to do in the future, working for a sports team or working uh, in the business side behind sports. And I wrote an 18-page paper, just turned it in yesterday, an 18-page essay about salary floors in the MLB and why a salary floor is needed. And right now, the MLB only has a luxury tax, $230 million. You go over that to a certain degree, you're paying for every single dollar you go over, basically, a percentage of every dollar you're paying. And... One thing I was looking at is the correlation between win percentage, how much money you spend in fan attendance. So first off is how much money you spend. What your payroll is, is the main thing I was looking at. And so I was talking about the need for a salary floor because if you look at it, the difference, the discrepancy between the top five payrolls of baseball and the bottom five payrolls of baseball is ridiculous. And that's the reason I think baseball needs to figure out a way to even some of the competition in the game. You can't be having teams spend no money. And I'm going to look at really quick my Excel spreadsheet I had open. Uh, yesterday, I made a whole entire spreadsheet, 18 pages on the reason that a salary floor is needed in baseball, as I said. And I looked at the correlation between win percentage and fan attendance with a team's salary floor or, or salary uh, payroll, payroll salary. And I think if you look at a lot of teams aren't spending money in baseball compared to other ones. I mean, if you look at the New York Mets, I mean, they're spending more money than anyone. Same thing with the Dodgers and the Yankees. But then you look at teams like the Nationals, who aren't spending any money. Or the Nationals last year were actually around $126 million. So they did spend some money last year. But going into this year, uh, they will have some less, some less money on the books. They were still under the league minimum, though, or the league average. The league average last year was $150 million uh, total payroll in the season. Baltimore Orioles last year, total payroll was $44 million. Oakland Athletics, $48 million. Pirates, $66 million. Guardians, $66 million. Miami Marlins, $83 million. Then you look at the Dodgers, first in payroll, $270 million. Mets, second, $268 million. The Yankees, third, $252 million. Fourth, the Padres, or the Phillies, that is, $244 million. And the Padres in fifth with $224 million. And one thing I was comparing is the average money spent between the top five teams and the bottom five teams. And let me see if I can get that open really quick here. That was one thing I was talking about was how much money the top five teams spend and then the bottom five teams. The average of the top five payrolls in baseball is $252 million. You know what the bottom five is? $61 million. $61 million. 
So at the end of the day, something has to happen to baseball to try to even that balance. And I talked about the reason for a salary floor, and I think at the end of the day, that's going to help all of baseball. Maybe the Red Sox start spending money if there's a minimum, which the Red Sox are well over that minimum. It really doesn't apply to them. But if you make a salary floor, other teams are going to have to spend more money, and maybe the Red Sox see the competition around them getting better, and they have to spend money. Maybe that's how it would go. I'm not sure. I mean, that's a tough thing to compare, obviously. But the difference between the top and the bottom, though, is ridiculous. And one thing I was comparing is that to attendance rate. And the bottom 10 teams last year in fan attendance, 9 of 10 of them were in the bottom 10 in payroll salaries last year. So that just proves, at the end of the day, winning matters. Winning matters. And baseball needs to do something about a salary floor. This is what my whole paper was about 18 pages on it. Anything, anytime anything's about sports, I get into it. And that's the reason I have the show. And that's the reason I took that class because I love sports. But there's, a, there's definitely a need for a change in baseball to try to even the balance. You can't have teams like the Oakland days and the Baltimore are spending $45 million when you the Dodgers and the Padres and the Phillies and the Mets and the Yankees spending $270 million. How do you have teams spending two seventy, and then you have the Dodgers... Uh, the Dodgers spent 270, and then you have the Baltimore Orioles spending 45 million. Something has to change in the game of baseball. Hopefully, there is a change. And at the end of the day, hold my paper. If I ever got that out there, I'd send it to Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball. I'd say, hey, something's got to happen. I'm sure it's been talked about. I know the major league baseball owners talked about it in the last collective bargaining agreement associations in March. They tried, obviously, and didn't get anywhere since the place and no right away. But the reason why the owners want it isn't because they want it because they want to even the balance of baseball. They only want it so if you have a minimum salary, that might bring the luxury tax number down. With, with the minimum salary for, let's say every team has spent $100 million, that means the Orioles have to spend $50 more million and uh, the Athletics have to spend $50 more million at least. If you have a minimum salary floor, that $230 million threshold of luxury tax probably might come down a little bit, might change a little bit so they might be saving some money. Or it might go up a little bit. If you're making a minimum salary floor, that'll probably actually go up. It would be the reverse. It would be the reverse. So the minimum salary floor would probably be $100 million, and Then the luxury tax competitive balance threshold would probably be around $250 million rather than $230 million, which is going to go up every single year as the average payroll goes up as well. But we'll see what happens, obviously. But something has to change in the game of baseball. So... That's a summary of my paper there. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I'm going to talk about some other things the Red Sox did. So I said signing Kenley Jansen, losing Xander Bogarts. I'm with my friend Tim, Tim Loftus. As I said, the biggest fan of the show. Thank you guys for listening, Tim. He said Xander's gone. He agrees with me about High and Bloom, obviously, uh, not being the best president of baseball operations in his few years now with the Red Sox going into his fourth season with the Red Sox. And obviously, we made the American League Championship Series in 2021, but we have finished last in the American League in 2020. Uh, in the last American League East, so in the division, the AL East in 2020 and in 2022. So two last place finishes from out of three years. Something has to change. And this Red Sox team, once again, looks like a team that's going nowhere. When every team around them is getting better. One thing the Red Sox did, they signed Japanese outfielder Masataka Yoshida. Five years, $90 million. $18 million a year for him. Seven years playing in the Japan Professional Baseball League. Yoshida hit 327 with a 539. Slugging percentage, a 161 total in doubles, which is very impressive, 161 doubles in seven years. Seven triples, 133 home runs, 467 runs batted in. Also had 21 home runs this past season. Career high of home runs was 2019. He had 29 home runs total. And last year, he led his team, the Buffaloes it was, to their first Japanese series title in 26 years. So very impressive uh, year for him. And that article uh, came from MLB.com there, a lot of those stats. So... He got $90 million, can opt out 
I believe at one point in that contract, uh, let me see. Maybe not, actually. I'm not sure if you can opt out. I know Kodai Senga from the Mets got a potential opt out with them after year three, but uh, he ends up getting a big deal for the Red Sox five years, 90 million. On base machine, gets on base a ton, 327. At batting average, 421 on base percentage and a 539 slugging percentage. Very impressive. Seven years for him there in Japan. So, obviously, he brings a little bit of talent to this Red Sox lineup. They still have more holes to fill and more things to figure out in the future. So, now I'm going to move on to what the New York Mets have done. They've had actually, they've had probably the best offseason in all of the MLB. Getting Kodai Senga, getting him on a big deal. Uh, was a Japanese baseball player playing in the same league that uh, Yoshida was playing in. But... What a great signing Senga was. His fastball gets up to 102 miles an hour. Got five years, $75 million with a third-year opt-out from the Mets. And the Mets, Steve Cohen, their owner, is not afraid to spend money. So that's one thing about a salary floor is how can you get teams to compete when they're spending $50 million and you have the New York Mets having an owner like Steve Cohen is not afraid of spending $280, $300 million on a payroll. How can you compete? I mean, there's something that has to change. But... For Senga, very good pitcher. Had a great career over there in Japan. Uh, let me get his stats out really quick so I can break those down. But very good player. Obviously comes over to the Mets. Now will probably be the third or fourth player in the rotation. In his career in Japan, playing in there for 11 years in Japan. 87-44 and 44 record on the mound with a 2.59 ERA. Having 1,089 innings on the mound. Giving up 313 runs with 1,252 strikeouts to 414 walks. A 1.115 whip, 3.02 strikeouts per walk, and 10.3 strikeouts per nine innings pitched with a career 2.59 ERA, as I said. So very impressive 11 years for him there uh, in this past year in 2022. 1.89 ERA with an 11-6 record and 104 hits allowed and 31 earned runs allowed in 148 innings pitched with 159 strikeouts and 50 walks. So very impressive signing there for them. And that would probably be the third or fourth pitch on the rotation. Chris Bassett, who had a good year for them last year, goes over to the Toronto Blue Jays, signing a deal with the Blue Jays, leaving the Mets. After having a good year with them, the Mets had a very good season uh, with them. Now we'll be going over to the Toronto Blue Jays, signing a three-year, $63 million deal. Was an all-star in 2021 and won 15 games last season, which was a career best for him with the New York Mets, career best overall. 3-4-2 ERA and 30 starts for the Mets, 34 years old. Uh, by the, uh, or now he's 33, will be 34 at the start of the season. Had a very good uh, year low last year, 3-4-2 ERA. The Mets will replace him with Senga. And the Mets also got Jose Quintana as well, who's been around baseball a little bit. Very good pitcher, though. Uh, was with the Pirates and the Cardinals last year. Uh, but they signed him to a new deal. Uh, just got him as a free agent. He was one of the more, you know, middle-of-the-pack pitchers on the free agent market. But pretty good pickup, uh, getting him for $26 million dollars. Uh, not a bad deal adding him to that rotation, especially considering, I mean, you can never have too much pitching, and at the end of the day, you add a guy like Quintana to your lineup who would probably be, or your rotation, would probably be one of the best pitchers in the Red Sox, uh, if not the best. He gets two years, $26 million from the Mets. So pretty good pickup there for them. I'm going to break down some of the stats he's done over the past few years really quick. Uh, 293 ERA this past year with a 6-7 and seven record and 32 starts for the Pirates and the St. Louis Cardinals combined. 201 ERA with a 3-2 record in 12 starts for the Cardinals this past year, with 48 strikeouts to 16 walks and 62 and two-thirds innings pitched, with three strikeouts per walk and 6.9 strikeouts per nine innings pitched. So not a bad year for him, especially considering he's going to be the third or fourth start of the rotation. That's a great pickup there for the Mets. And the Mets, Mets also got back 
Their starting center fielder, Brandon Nemo, he comes back on a big deal, five years, which at the end of the day, you're going to have to sign him to a big contract, especially considering he's going to get a big payday from someone. If it's not going to be the Mets, he's going to get it from someone. I know he got a lot of buzz in the free agent market. He ends up signing a big deal to stay in New York. Uh, and at the end of the day, they want to keep him, and they get him an eight-year deal. It wasn't five years, excuse me. Eight-year deal, giving him $162 million at $20.25 million per year over the next eight years. He had a great year last year, 16 home runs, 274 batting average, 64 runs batted in, and 800 OPS with a 130 OPS+. plus. You add in all the RBIs as well, 64 RBIs, seven triples, which actually led the National League, and then also a 367 on base percentage and 800 OPS, and started 151 games for them. Pretty good, uh, or 151 games played for them. Pretty good pickup there for them. He was also a Mets first-round pick, 13th overall in the 2011 draft. So you got to keep homegrown talent. I think that's a problem with the Red Sox. They're not keeping their homegrown talent. And if you look at it, you let Bogots go, homegrown talent. You let Mookie Betts go, homegrown talent. You let Andrew Benintendi go, yet again, homegrown talent. What's going to happen with Rafael Devers? Are you going to let him walk? At the end of the day, I actually think the Red Sox are going to let Rafael Devers go. I do. I have a family they're not going to pay him because if you're not going to pay Mookie Betts, how are you going to pay Rafael Devers? And I love Devers, don't get me wrong, but Mookie Betts, top five, top ten player based on when he's on. I don't know how you didn't pay Mookie Betts. And as I said, I don't blame Bloom for that, essentially. I'm blaming ownership. But how are you going to pay Rafael Devers if you're not going to spend on any of those other guys? Especially considering, I mean, Andrew Benatendi wouldn't have been as much money as Rafael Devers is going to be. So you could have kept some of that talent, obviously, around. The Red Sox chose not to, and the Red Sox made that decision to trade Mookie Betts, and everyone said, well, okay, now they're saving some money to pay Andrew Benatendi and Xander Bogats and Rafael Devers. Well, two of those three guys are gone now. So I'm not sure what the Red Sox are going to do. They obviously have decisions to make, uh, but we'll obviously see what happens there. So those are some of the biggest moves there so far in free agency. Noah Syndergaard getting a $13 million deal, one-year deal from the Los Angeles Dodgers today, right before uh, this episode, about two hours ago now, we got a big deal from them. One year's $13 million. Five and two record this past year for the Phillies after being traded from the Angels to the Phillies at the trade deadline. Had a 4-1-2 ERA for the Phillies in 10 starts, or 10 games, 9 starts. Overall in the year, 10-10 record. With a 3.94 ERA, 24 starts, 134 innings pitched, striking out 95 batters to 31 walks. Obviously, his strikeout per nine inning ratio is down. If you look at what he did with the Mets over his career, 9.7 strikeouts per nine innings pitched. What he did this past year in 2022, 6.3. 6.3. So obviously, that's down. And if you look at it, his whip is a little bit up than it was with the Mets. His whip this past year was a 1.255 whip. What he did with the Mets in seven years, or in six years with the Mets, was 1.162. So, obviously his ERA was up too. His ERA with the Mets was 3.32. This past year, 3.94. And also, as I said, his strikeout per nine inning uh, ratio went down heavily from 9.2 with the Mets to this past year between the Phillies and Angels, 6.3. So, obviously, that's a difference maker there. And at the end of the day, though, he goes to a good pitcher rotation in LA. And obviously, they've lost some pieces now over the past... A uh, few weeks, Cody Bellinger going over uh, to the... Where did Bellinger go now? i got to make sure I get that right. Cody Bellinger signed a one-year deal. It was with the... Uh, trying to remember here. It's tough to remember all these things. So many signings that's tough to remember all these things at the end of the day, and that's what it comes down to. Uh, but he signed a one-year deal, uh, Bellinger, with the Cleveland Guardians, or Chicago Cubs. That's what it is. Chicago Cubs, one-year deal. 
Uh, so not a bad pickup there for them. I think Bellinger, he's been struggling the last few years, but I've been rooting for him heavily uh, to turn things around. It's tough to remember where he went. I mean, at the end of the day, he wasn't really a big free agent uh, player. No one really, have, you know, probably got a little buzz, but he wasn't like an Aaron Judge or uh, any of those other guys who getting a lot of buzz, like Trey Turner and Zander Bogats. But at the end of the day, he hopefully will recover his career now uh, in Chicago for a Cubs team that's obviously rebuilding and lost a lot of pieces already over the past few years, including Rizzo. Anthony Rizzo's been gone. Javier Baez has been gone. And then also Chris Bryant and lost some other pieces too. Wilson Contreras as well as uh, another guy gone. So a lot of Legos are falling in Chicago. Hopefully Cody Bellinger finds his feet there and helps them out and gets them back on track. So really quick, I'm going to try to see if I can get on as a guest. Just give me one second here and then I'll get back into some college hockey uh, and then hopefully have a guest come on. So now I'm going to dive in really quick before we get somebody on. I'm going to dive into college hockey and update you guys on how BC is playing, Northeastern hockey as well. One thing I'm worried about is Northeastern hockey. I mean, they've been struggling now over the last four games, losing four in a row, which is tough. One of those games being an overtime loss to BU. Another game being lost to Western Michigan, two of those really good teams. But they've been losing games they typically win. Losing to Union 3-2 to two, and then losing to Sacred Hot this past week, a week ago from yesterday. And Sacred Hot losing that game 4-2. to two. That's just games Northeastern typically wins. And they lost that game 4-2. to two. Sam Colangelo had a goal on that game against Sacred Hot and Matt DeMellis as well. But that's games Northeastern typically wins. you got to win those games against Union Sacred Heart. The next time they play is this coming uh, Saturday, it is, versus Long Island at Long Island at 7-15. Long Island having a tough season there, uh, not having a good year at all. But Northeastern has to figure something out. They need to get themselves back on track, especially considering, I mean, they were such a good team last year going into this year where top 10, everyone was talking about them. They got a lot of buzz. But now they lose the games they should win. They will be playing uh, Long Island, who they opened up the season with at Matthews Arena October 1st. They won that game 3-2 to two in overtime. Got a big goal from Vinny Borghese, uh, who's a freshman, who is a freshman, I should say. That was his first game of college hockey. Big goal there from him. Had a goal from Cam Lunt and Braden Doyle in that game as well. Uh, all three of those guys being newcomers at Northeastern. But as for Long Island, 6-10-1 on the year. Northeastern has to rebound against them and get a big win. Since I'm starting to worry, 7-7-3 on the year. 6-4-2 in the Hockey East, 7-7-3 overall. And they've just fallen and fallen and fallen and fallen in the rankings. They're out of the top 20 now. And right now in the pairwise rankings, a 25th. Northeastern's always better than that. They're always better than that. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I mean, you have goal scorers. I mean, they have a ton of talent. But just things are not going their way right now. And I'm hoping they turn things around. Hopefully maybe get on track. Maybe win that game against Long Island, and then they'll have a little bit of a break as well before playing Bentley on December 30th and Harvard on January 1st. And Harvard's having a really good game. That, that'll be a tough matchup. I think the B part this is going to be great. Harvard-BC, going to be a great game. Northeastern-BU. All four teams can win that. All four teams are very competitive and having a really good season. So that should be a fun one to watch there. But I want to recap how BC hockey's been playing as of late. BC hockey's been playing great. I know, obviously... Uh, my dad's a huge BC hockey fan, so I root for them for him. But that win last week over BU 9-6 to had to be one of the biggest statement wins for BC hockey over the last five years, at least, I would say. I mean, BC had a really good year, his first year and second year. But at the end of the day, his last or first and second year of the last five. So Jerry Oak had a great year in 2019-2020. Uh, and then in 2021... Eh, yeah, for BC Hockey, they weren't really good last year when I was a junior. And then this year, 6-5-4 and four, uh, on the year, 5-3-3 and three and three in the Hockey East. But getting a 96 win over BU was huge, including seven goals. Seven goals between the two teams in the second period. 
BU started up the game down 2 nothing. BC scored. Lucas Gustafson had a goal, power play goal to start the game. Charlie Letty had a goal just 45 seconds after that. 2 nothing BC. Then Matt Brown had a power play goal for BU, made it 2-1. Uh, to one. And then Quinn Hudson tied it up just a minute and a half later, just about to make it 2-2 two to two going into the second period. And then there were seven goals between the teams in the second period. Cutter Goudier for BC had two of those five goals there for BC, which is crazy. BC ends up being up 8-5 after a Nikita Nestorenko power play goal in the third period. 8-5, 10 minutes to go. BU scores, makes it 8-6 with a minute and a half to go, but that was too much for BU to come back from. 9-6 win for BC. They end up getting another goal from Christian O'Neill with a, uh, just under a minute to go. So huge win for BC. If you look at it, that game was just all over the place. With shots on goal-wise, it was 37-36 BC. There was a good amount of... Uh, shots on goal, quality shots on goal that could have scored out of those, you know, 73 between those two teams. Uh, obviously a big win for BC. They get themselves higher now in the pairwise rankings. Now they're at 21, so just outside the top 20. Very impressive, though, for BC, considering uh, how good of a finish they had to the first half of the season. Now they'll be playing Arizona State, traveling to Arizona State in Tempe, Arizona on December 30th and December 31st. They'll be playing two games there against Arizona State and former Northeastern goalie, who's now their starter there at Arizona State. Uh, it is TJ Semdenfelter for the Sun Devils. He's their starting goalie. And they also have Ty Jackson, Dylan Jackson from Northeastern, and then Robert Master Simone, one of the best BU players over the last few years, transferred over there as well. So BC, though, over the last five games, beat Brown, lost to Providence in a shootout, beat Providence in a shootout, and then beat BU. Very impressive stretch there from BC. Very impressive. And if you go back further than that, they lost 5-2 to Notre Dame on November 25th. That's a tough game. But before that, beating UMass Lowell, a very good team, 3-2 to at home. And then beating Northeastern as well, 3-2 to at home as well. Both of those coming uh, at Conti Forum. They've had a good stretch, and they also tied Northeastern. Lost a game in a shootout on November 11th when I was in New York City. I remember watching that game. Crazy finish for Northeastern coming back. They were down in that game. 4-1 to with 10 minutes to go. Northeastern came back. Uh, ended up making it uh, four to four. They scored three goals in the last ten minutes, including a goal with just like a second or two left to go, which was nuts. Uh, ended up winning that game in a shootout uh, with Cam Lund getting three goals in that game, three goals, and also the shootout goal as well. That kid's just ridiculous. Uh, so talented. Four goals in that game total. But you look at BC. So in overtime, lost to Northeastern in a shootout, beating Northeastern. So that's one zero and one there. Beating UMass Low 2-0-1. Losing to Notre Dame 2-1-1. Beating Brown is 3-1-1. Losing to Providence in a shootout was 3-1-2. And, and then beating Providence in a shootout 4-1-2. And, and now they are 5-1-2 in their last eight games played. So they finished the year very hot, and that's just very impressive. Happy for BC Hockey. Um, they, closing, they closed out that first half of the year very much strong. Uh, and you look at it. Now, I mean, the Hockey East games are coming up. That's when it's the most important time of the year. You're getting hot at the right time. Cutter Goudier, the fifth overall pick this past year in the NHL draft, the 2022 NHL draft of the Philadelphia Flyers. 10 goals, 6 assists, 16 points for him in just 13 games played. He's averaging 1.23 points per game. So very impressive start to his college career. I think he's only going to be a BC for one year, but uh, we'll obviously see what happens there. So now I'm going to move on uh, to talking about the Celtics and the Clippers. That was a big game the other night for the Clippers. As you guys know, I'm a big Clippers fan, so uh, that was an ideal game for me. The Clippers playing the Celtics. Uh, you guys know I'm a big fan of them. Uh, the Clippers got a big win, though. I think it was the most put-together win for the Clippers in the last couple seasons. I don't think they've done that, really, in 
I don't know. I mean, I don't remember the last time Paul George Kawhi Leonard played together. Was it the 2021 West Conference Finals run? Pretty sure in that playoff run was the last time they played together. So they haven't played together in a year and a half, really. Now this season, they've had, you know, seven or eight games together, which I'm going to break down a statistic of their stats when they do play together. And they're significantly better as a team when both of those guys are on the floor. Let me see where I can get that really quick. So Paul George Kawhi Leonard, with them this season, the Clips are 6-2. and two. Averaging 108.8 points per game, 103.8 points allowed per game. You look at it, they're 2-5 and five without them, without both of them in the line at the same time. 106.4 points per game, so just 2 points less per game, but giving up over 11 points per game more, 115.1 points per game without both those guys in the lineup, giving up 100-plus points in all seven games that both guys are not playing at the same time. So, obviously, they need both those guys in the lineup, and now you're starting to see how good this Clippers team can be with both those guys healthy. Huge win for them over the Celtics. The Celtics hold the best record in the NBA. They actually held the Celtics to 100, under 100 points. The first time this season, the Celtics were held to under 100. They beat the Celtics 113-93. to 20-point win for the Clippers. As for Clippers, I'm going to talk about who played best for them, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the Celtics as well uh, and what happened there. But... Overall, everyone contributed to that Clippers win. It was great to see. I mean, everyone got minutes except for Robert Covington. Not really sure what happened there and why he's been falling out of the rotation. But everyone played well. Paul George, 8-22 from the floor. Not his best shooting night, but finished the game with 26 points, 6 rebounds, 3 assists in a steal. Kawhi Leonard, his best game of the last two years now, 25 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists, 10-12 shooting from the floor, and 2-3 of three from 3. Was 3-6 of six from the free throw line. Did start a little bit from the line, but had a great game. That's the best I've seen him play and. Two years, obviously, now it's been 500 days since he had a 20-point game. But he just felt so comfortable. Felt so comfortable with those fadeaways. He just looked so good. And I think this Clippers team is a lot different when he's fully healthy, obviously. Reggie Jackson had a good game. Didn't really contribute too much offensively. Had some good plays of 7 points, uh, 3 of 8 shooting. Marcus Morris, 13 points of 6 of 8 shooting. Had a really good game. Nick Batum off the bench, 7 points, 2 of 2 shooting. Luke Kennard, huge addition to that Clippers lineup, getting him back healthy as well. 5 of 9 shooting, 12 points. And then my boy Terrence Mann had a great game, 4 of 9 shooting, 9 points, 7 rebounds. 5 of those being offensive boards, which is nuts. And also block, blocking Jason Tatum. On that play there, he glassed Tatum. The ball goes off the board. John Wall finds it. John Wall finished that game with 6 points. Four rebounds and four assists in a steal. John Wall finds that board off the glass, goes full court, kicks it out on an outlet pass up court to uh, Luke Kennard. He gets Luke Cornett in the air for pump fake, sidestep three. Huge play there for the Clippers, huge momentum uh, swing for them, and Clippers end up winning that game. As for the Celtics and what happened there, as a team, they struggled shooting, just shot 23% from three. I think that's the thing with the Celtics. They were shooting 40% from three for so long, and everyone was so reliant on the three-point shot. Everyone was so reliant on the three-point shot. I think that's the difference now. The Celtics team now is finally starting to hit a point where you can't just shoot threes. And I'm not rooting against them. I think at the end of the day, I love the Celtics shooting 40% from three, but that's not something you can rely on a whole season. I'd rather them start missing threes now so they can realize, okay, we have to start working the paint and starting to get the ball inside like we did over the last couple seasons. And I know you don't have the guys healthy that you've had. You don't have Al Horford healthy right now. You don't have Robert Williams healthy. I know it's a different lineup when you have Blake Griffin in there rather than those two guys. But the Celtics are going to come to a point at some point where they're going to start missing shots and they have to start moving the ball in the paint. And it's a good time to do that early in the season rather than later. Because now you can make adjustments. You still have a whole second half of the season and more to go. As what happened in that game, though, against the Clippers, Tatum was 7-20 from the floor with 20 points, a minus 18 plus-minus ratio. Marcus Smart, 1-6 of six shooting, not a great game from him, with just 3 points, minus 25 plus-minus ratio, with just 1 rebound, 3 assists, no steals, and a block. Also had 5 fouls as well. 
Jalen Brown, 21 points of 9 of 15 shooting, 1 of 6 from 3. Tough night with him shooting from the three-point line. Four rebounds, two assists, two steals. And then Blake Griffin did a bad night, six rebounds, five points, but was just getting attacked all night in the paint by the Clippers team. Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, driving play after play and getting to the lane, getting to the cup with ease. Uh, one player that played very well for the Celtics in that game was Malcolm Brogdon. Six of 12 shooting from the floor, two of six from three. Added in 4-4 from the free throw line. Six assists, four rebounds, a block, and 18 points. And the blood, the, out of the guys that... Played the majority of the game, had the best plus-minus ratio on the team of guys that played over 25 minutes uh, with a minus-three plus-minus ratio. So he's one of the most effective players in the court when he's playing. But as for the Celtics last night, they recovered well. I mean, they played at one point horrifically. They were up 20 points in the Lakers, almost ended up losing that game. The Celtics were up 84-65 to in the third quarter with 5.33 to go. So up 19 points with just about 17 and a half minutes to go. By the fourth quarter, Mark, so just 12 minutes later, just about, with four minutes to go in the fourth quarter, the Celtics found themselves down by 12 points. They end up coming back miraculously, tying the game off of Jason Tatum, three points, 17 seconds to go. Forced that game to overtime. The Celtics win that game 122 to 118. But at one point, the Celtics were down 13 with 341 to go. They end up winning that game. But at one point, they gave a 32 to 5 run, a 32 to 5 run over a nine minute stretch in the fourth quarter. From the start of the fourth quarter, or just about the end of the third quarter, the start of the fourth, to three minutes to go in the fourth quarter. So the end of the third quarter to four minutes to go in the fourth quarter. The Celtics gave up a 32-5 to run over nine minutes. And overall, that run, that miraculous run for the, for the Lakers overall was 44-12. to A 44-12 to run. So obviously something had to change with that Celtics team. They had to wake up in overtime, end up getting a huge win, uh, which was great for them. They needed the Celtics to get back on track. 122 to 118 went over the Lakers last night. Tatum had a great game, 15 to 29 shooting, 44 points, nine rebounds, six assists, and a block with nine to 12, a nine to 10 shooting from the free throw line. As the Lakers, Russell Westbrook had a great game. Shooting wise, wasn't the best, seven to 19 shooting, one to six and three. But 20 points, 14 rebounds, and 5 assists with 4 blocks and a steal. He was very effective on both ends of the court last night with 20 points. And then look at what LeBron James did. He had 20 for him, 33 points, 9 rebounds, 9 assists, 2 steals, a block. Uh, adding in 14 of 25 shooting from the floor for 56% free throw or field goal percentage. Anthony Davis with 13 of 24 from the floor with 12 rebounds, 3 assists, a block, a steal, and 37 points. Celtics still end up winning that game. Still end up winning that game. And obviously, at the end of the day... Celtics being, right now at this point, so good, being number one in the NBA in points per game at 119.4 points per game and holding a record right now of 22-7 and seven is just brilliant. So Celtics can't complain, but I think at the end of the day, they couldn't just keep relying on the three-point ball. And I think at the end of the day, you had to come to a point where you said, okay, we have to start scoring and not just on threes. So good uh, game for the Celtics recovering last night. Obviously, obviously a major collapse, giving up a 42 uh, to 10 run, but still end up getting a win, uh, which is most important at the end of the day. So now I'm going to see if I can get Paul from Southie on. Just give me one second to coordinate, and I'll be just back on in one second. Here he is, Paul from Southie, back, back of the podcast. How are we doing, Paul? How are we doing, Paul? Joe, we're doing well. How are you tonight? Enjoyed the show. How have you liked it so far? It sounds good? You're making a lot of sense. Uh, we all love that paper about the salary floor in baseball. Uh, good research, and I agree with it 100%. Yeah, something's got to change. Yeah, something's got to huh? there's, there's a definite correlation between fans in the seats and the teams, you know, the team's record and and the salary. I mean, it all adds up. 
Definitely. Um, so we'll see what happens, obviously, there uh, with baseball. But uh, we have an echo there. Now right here, there's an echo for a little bit there. But uh, what were you saying about the salary for? You said you agree that there should be one, correct? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think you did a lot of research, and, and it adds up. If teams aren't spending money, then they're, they're going to do poorly, and no one's going to go to the games. So uh, it's too much of a disparity between the teams that spend $230 million and you got some teams spending like $50 million. Yeah, it's, it's too wide a gap. I'm with you. I think something has to change. I agree with you there, and I appreciate uh, you listening and enjoying that segment. I'll send you that 18-page paper. There's a lot written there, but there's a lot, a lot of good stuff, obviously, and you know I love sports, so anything about sports, I'll write 18 pages, anything on sports, you know? Yeah, I agree. It was um, good paper. So I want to get your opinion on some things. We can get, obviously, baseball. We can get into the Giants. We can talk about any of that stuff, BC football, BC hockey even. I got into a little bit. I don't know if you heard that segment, but uh, what do you want to start with, any of those? How about we we, we lost Phil Jakovic uh, joining the uh, Pittsburgh Panthers? Yeah, how do you feel about that? Obviously, you were a Jakovic fan for a little bit, but you think Moorhead's the guy? I would think Jakovic lost the job, yeah. So he probably saw the writing on the wall. He probably talked to the coach and said you'd have to earn your job back, and maybe he thought he could walk into a starting job in Pittsburgh. I think he did. That's what he thought, I bet. Well, he's there back now with Frank Signetti, former BC offensive coordinator, the offensive coordinator at Pittsburgh. So... Uh, I think he probably saw that and said, I want to be back with him. And obviously he was good in his time with him at BC. So that's probably part of it, you think, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And he, he can probably walk right into us. Is he going to be the start? I, I think somebody left Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, Keaton Slovis was a starting quarterback there, and he's going to be leaving there. His third team in three yeah, years. He was at USC two years ago. Pittsburgh last year, now going to another right, team. Slovis. That's right. So we'll see what happens there, obviously. But uh, you think it's Moorhead's the guy, right? I think, yeah, he, he played pretty well down the stretch again with the banged-up offensive line and, uh, you know, a stud receiver in Zay. But after that, there really wasn't much depth at the position. I mean, uh, we saw Dino Tomlin make a couple of big catches. I think Joe Griffin, the freshman, yeah, showed a lot of promise. From but, Springfield. Uh, again, he, he's a freshman. Um, yeah, and the fact that we couldn't run the ball, I think Moorhead uh, played pretty well. Definitely. And so, obviously, the season didn't go BC's way, being 3-9. and nine. There was some spurts in the middle, though. Obviously, beating Louisville was a big win. Beating Malik Cunningham. I know he went down the fourth quarter. That's a big win. Beating uh, NC State was a huge win for BC. And then UMaine was another win. But one thing that a lot of people are talking about now in the offseason with BC being 3-9 and nine is, is Jeff Halfley on the hot seat? How do you feel about it? I wouldn't go that far. I know I've been reading that and hearing a little about it, but... I mean, you can't count the COVID year for anything. I mean, they what they turned down a bowl game because of it. Fine, he probably made the right decision, but you know, the, the offensive line pretty much left them last year, and then the mahogany injury—they never repaired it. So that was a major problem. And now, when I, you know, we went to the last game of the year, the senior night, it looked like we're, we're losing most of the secondary too. So yep. he's got some big shoes to fill, but he, he's he's recruited real well the last couple of years. I would definitely. Never consider letting him go yet. You got to give him at least a couple more years, um, and hopefully he can turn us around, going in the right direction. Yeah, because I I don't think the team ever quit. For some reason, we started out extremely slow in a couple of games. Virginia Tech, Florida State, but F Florida State's a power now. But still, you know when we fell behind fourteen nothing in those games, it seemed like in the first two drives, and it was uh, you know uphill battle from there so we have to avoid those stats definitely that's obviously a problem and 
One thing is BC never really found their footing with the offensive line. That was a big issue all season. Uh, I think one thing with halfway though is usually they give a guy two or three years to figure it out and uh, it's, uh, well, more, a little more than two or three years, usually about four years because you want to see how his recruiting class was for his first year is when they're in their fourth year. But he is losing a lot of guys. That whole secondary will be gone for the most part. The starting secondary from the beginning of the year was Elijah Jones and Josh DeBerry, cornerback. Both those guys will be gone. And then Jason Matry, uh starting at safety and Jaden would be as well. So all four guys will be gone uh, this upcoming, coming into next season. All four guys have either entered the portal or will be going to the draft. So they will be losing a lot of talent. Matry's in the portal. Uh, DeBerry will be going to the draft, I'm sure. Uh, Elijah Jones, I'm not really too sure there if he has a grad year or not, but either way, he's done with his eligibility at BC probably, and then would be, uh, I think, is in the portal as well. So BC's losing a lot of talent in that secondary, uh, and obviously the offensive line really never recovered too. So a lot of issues there, and you're losing Zay Flowers. So that's a big playmaker gone. The run game really never found their footing. So the offense this year really was just Zay Flowers So and Joe Griffin as well. So Obviously, BC has a lot to figure out, but I think they'll probably keep him at least another year or two, especially considering they just gave him a six-year extension last year. I don't think you can get rid of him after that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with you, and he has to do his, you know, I'm sure he's out in the recruiting trail now, but he's got to keep an eye on the portal every day because you can, I, I saw a couple of offensive linemen, one from Alabama. One from one Yale? From like, yeah, one from a Big Ten school. I mean, that's exactly what we need if he could, you know, figure out how to get those guys to play over here. I mean, he, he could um, improve us dramatically with the offensive line. You know, guys coming from the SEC or the Big Ten. I think if there was one from Purdue. Wow. Yeah, it's good. I mean, Purdue, Purdue always wins some big games. Jeff Brom, their head coach, is actually leaving there uh, to go to Louisville. But uh, they always win good games per Purdue. They always beat top five teams. They were, I think, 4-1 and one or 5-1 and one during uh, Brom's time with Purdue is just a fun fact there I wanted to add in. But yeah, those, those kids are big too, you know. I mean, that's just what we need here. Well, they compete. We, yeah, we lost the whole running game this year. I mean, that freshman kid looked good. He looked quick. He had a lot of pop through the hole. So I mean, hopefully he can, uh, you know, be a stud next year. But not without an offensive line. Definitely, I'm with you there. So we'll see what happens with BC. Obviously, uh, we're both big BC football fans. And one thing this past weekend that's good news for BC football is Anthony Brown from a BC quarterback for four or five years. Was it four years at BC and then a couple years with Oregon? Yeah. Is now, or maybe not the starter going into this week, depending on if uh, Huntley, the backup quarterback for the Ravens, can play or not. But he got some snaps last week for the Ravens, which was awesome. They yeah, led them to so a win. Yeah, yes. We're big Anthony Brown fans. I was always on Team Anthony Brown. I thought he transferred and Jerkova came in. Everyone was always doing the, now we finally have a quarterback and this, that. I was always on the Anthony Brown train. I know you always liked both quarterbacks. You never really picked a side. Uh, but I loved Anthony Brown always. And I thought at the end of the day, we were best with Anthony Brown quarterback. Nothing against Jerkovic. I always just thought Anthony Brown was better for that BC system. I thought he was a better quarterback here and more successful. And I know I got a lot of slack for that over the years. But I always loved AB and I'm happy to see him succeed in big, in big moments. I'm sure you too. Absolutely. When I when I saw the crawl saying that Anthony Brown was quarterback on the Ravens like mid game last week, I was so happy. I, I enjoyed his time here. I know he, he went right into the portal when uh Adazio was fired. Um but his time here, I mean we scored a lot of points with him. I mean he could run, he could throw. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think he threw many, you know, untimely picks. No, I, I agree. I mean, he, he, the touch passes was tough a little bit sometimes because you're missing him. Maybe yeah. a little bit of a touch pass like, like we talked about. But right. he led us twice to uh, a ranking in the Associated Press ranking, the AP rankings. And we were twice ranked and 17th once was the highest we've ranked uh, with him. And we never ranked at all in the Dracovic era or the Halfley era for that matter. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So 
he um he he was a star here, so I'm glad he's gonna make it with the Ravens and uh I hope he gets some more playing time, especially this weekend. Definitely. Uh, so one thing I want to transition to really quick before we get into some other things. Obviously, we'll talk some baseball, Red Sox. Maybe talk a little bit about the Giants as well. I want to talk BC hockey while we're talking BC sports. Obviously, Jerry York night was last weekend. Big big win for BC hockey. And then, obviously, it showed BC can compete with the biggest team, or one of the biggest teams out of college hockey. BU was a top seven team this year. What did you see in that game? Are you excited about the future of the team? Obviously, now considering they have 5-1-3, I think, in their last – or 5-1-3, I think is what I said, in their last nine games. Yeah, I was very pleased with the play the last few weeks. I enjoyed the Jerry York night tremendously. I'm, I'm glad they gave him, him and his wife a trip to Hawaii. He certainly's earned that. Um, I think one thing I was surprised at is the goalie Benson. Yeah, he seems a big upgrade from the Eric Dopp. Yeah, Eric Dopp. Both of them are transfer goalies. You know, coming in, Dopp has come from Bowling Green as a grad student transfer. Uh, just for one year last year, and then Mitch Benson coming over from Colgate. Now BC starting goalie for one year. He's a grad student as well. But uh, I agree with you. I think in that third period, faced a lot of shots on goal that could have scored. He made some great saves, uh, especially considering, I mean, B, BU had 36 shots on goal. So anytime you give up 36 shots on goal, it typically doesn't go your way and you win a game. But uh, considering BC scored nine goals, that's a win. When you give up six goals, you'd think it's his fault. But there were, there were some goals that weren't his fault. I mean, there was a couple times he was screened, and then a couple times BU's just good. Right, and BU's just really good. That's part of it, too. Yeah, no, and they're fast. They reminded me of the BC teams under York a few years ago. You know, smaller guys who can fly to the puck, and uh, anytime they pick up a loose puck and transition around the uh, the red line, they seem to have a, like a three-on-two, you know? Yeah. So it was a huge one. I don't, I don't know how nine to six, so uncharacteristic for those two teams, but um, I think Benson has made some great saves I've seen over the last few weeks, and he is certainly an upgrade that we can definitely, uh, maybe we'll, we'll catch fire. I like the young talent we have. Um, a couple of those kids, what are they, freshmen, I think. Uh, Goudier. So, Own a lot of promise, putting the puck in the net. Uh, and one thing about Benson is that he faced 16 shots a goal in that third period, save 15 of 16 shots. Finishing it very hot. 15 of 16 saves in that third period. BU is just lighting it up on shots a goal in the last two periods. The first two periods, BC led 28-20 to 20 in shots on goal. The last two periods, so the first and second were the first two. Obviously, second and third period, 26 shots on goal for BC, 29 for BU, including 16 in that third period. So BC got outshot 16-9 in that third period, but they were playing, obviously, a lot of defense just trying to keep the lead. And uh, very big win for BC. As you said, Benson played great. And uh, one good thing for BC is now they're going into the break. Probably is one of the hottest teams in all the Hockey East, uh, definitely in the Hockey East, and maybe one of the best uh, finishes in all college hockey, finishing uh, obviously the last seven or eight games with only one loss. Yeah, they got to stay hot. I know they don't play until December 30th. I think you said, I think they're going out to Arizona State for a couple games. Yep, to play TJ Semtefelter, my, my, my old boy. Great goalie again, um, but hopefully they can uh, continue the, um, you know, the, the, the good scoring. Marshall Warren in the defense, he's anchored them pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so Marshall's good. Yeah, he's solid. Uh, yeah, no, no question. He's uh, he's a good leader for that team too. And that's a BU team. That's twelve NHL draft picks. Twelve guys in that BU team are NHL draft picks. Twelve. And Dolfo, the coach, that he just turned them around. It seemed like overnight. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they look like legitimate top ten team. Uh, again, they're, they're, they're not big, so you can probably muscle them, especially in the corners. But they're fast. Uh, they keep moving their feet, and they can put the puck on the net. So. They will be something to deal with down the stretch. Definitely. 
Definitely. And that was one good thing for BC, though, getting a win against them, showing you compete with one of the best teams all college hockey. And I told you, when I went to that game against Northeastern, they were doing circles. It was so fast. I said they played to a different speed than Northeastern. They were just doing circles around Northeastern. Even around BC, I mean, they still skated fast. Just BC played, you know, better defense in that third period and got a win. But they play so quick. 15 goals, I mean, you didn't expect that, right? No, that was that was so uncharacteristic for those two teams. It's always like a 3-2 to two game. That's what I thought. I thought it would have been 4-3 BC is my prediction. I didn't get to upload an episode, unfortunately, before. But 4-3 is my prediction BC. But one thing for BC is now, obviously going into the break now, was one of the hottest teams, I said. And they still have two more games in the, you know, the end of this year before they go into 2023. They'll have a week off after playing Arizona State. Then they get into Hockey East games, playing UMass Amherst. Then have an you know, uh, out-of-conference game against Sacred Heart. The UMass Amherst game will be the Frozen Four, uh, Frozen right. Fenway game on January seventh, yep. uh, which will be a fun game. But after that, they get into a lot of Hockey East games. They'll play BU again in the home and home, January twenty seventh and twenty eighth, and then the Bean Pot, which I want to talk about that really quick. February sixth, play Harvard at five o'clock, Monday night five o'clock. Harvard this year lead all college hockey. They, Harvard leads all college hockey in NHL draft picks with fifteen guys drafted on their team. Fifteen, amazing. Isn't that nuts? That's their whole team basically is drafted. But I, the reason why I say that is because I think this year is going to be the best competition that Beanpot's had in the last five to ten years I can think of. Yeah. When the last time Harvard was good, like really good, where they won the Beanpot, I think that was like 2015 maybe was the last time they won. Um, yeah. That was probably the last time the Beanpot was this competitive. All four teams are going to be playing pretty well at the time it looks. So, um, yes, it's going to be uh, quite a Beanpot. I'm excited, though, for it. I think, obviously, you're a big BC fan, so you're excited to see it. And Northeastern doesn't play BC until potentially the finals. So I guess you won't have a problem, uh, you know, during the first game, which would be good, which would be fun. It would be awesome, right? First Monday in February, right? Yep, you got it down. I'm ready. You got it down. But, yeah, Harvard hasn't won 11 championships overall. Northeastern's got seven. BC's got 20. BU's got 31, which is nuts. 31. Yeah ruled it for a while when i was there they were they would seem like they won every year but then i think bc when they won their three championships 2008 10 and 12 they probably won about five bean pots in a row definitely i'd agree with you yeah they were loaded back then and by the way harvard won 2017 so that was the last time they won um okay. but there's never been a bc versus a, B, a northeastern versus harvard final which is wild it's always bc uh-huh. or bu involved so that's a fun okay. fact there's never yep. been a northeastern harvard Wow, good. So, I mean, I'm not rooting that. That means obviously BC would lose in that case. And I want BC to play Northeastern since I missed the two games when I was in New York City. So, I'm um, hoping I get to see them play again. They still play again in January at Matthews Arena, but uh, I'd like to see them play, uh, you know, one more time. Why not? We're looking forward to it. So, anyways, I want to mention, though, really quick, when we were on the topic of BC, BC basketball got a win yesterday against Stonehill. Me and you, big Earl Grant fans. And obviously, at the end of the day, BC basketball being at the position they're in right now, obviously that game against Villanova didn't go their way. But being, you know, where they're at right now, considering India's past, BC's been struggling, obviously, in the Jim Christian era. Being 6-6 six and six right now, though, you'll take, which is great. I mean, we're big Earl Grant guys. We're proud of, obviously, the program. And they've had some losses they shouldn't have lost. But 6-6 six and six overall, you'll take, huh? Absolutely. It's been a, I mean, he, he turned it around pretty quick in one year. And even this year with the 500 record, if they just find a way to cut down in their turnovers, it seems like we, we turn the ball over careless too many times and we don't have enough firepower once we fall behind to climb back, you know? Definitely. It's shooting too. I mean, as a team right now, we're shooting 27% from the three-point line. 
And as a team, 41% from the fields overall, and then 66% from the free throw line. All three of those have to be better, obviously. Uh, and the turnovers averaging just about 12 a game. Uh, so, yeah, like you're right. It's also timely turnovers. Because it's not like they turn the ball every play, but when they turn it over, it turns into points. And that's what you never want, right? You never want to give up points off a turnover. Yeah, it seems like we got burned. I watched the Villanova game. Every time they, they stole the ball, Villanova came down and hit a three. Right. You and, know, like you said, we were shooting cold. If we miss our free throws, we dig a hole that we can't get out of because we don't have enough firepower. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they got a win last night over Stonehill. Stonehill just turned Division One, so uh, obviously they'll have an uphill battle for the first couple of years of being a Division One program. Now they're 4-8 on the air. BC got the win, though. It was close at halftime, actually, though. Uh, BC was only up nine points at half, and at one point, with about four or five minutes to go, it was a four-point game, a three-point game. BC ends up winning that game, though, 63-56. to uh, Got a good game out of Jaden Zachary. He played pretty well, 16 points off of 6 of 15 shooting, 3 of 6 from 3. Stono had a kid, Sims, which I don't really know much about him because I was at the Bruins game, didn't get to see it. 20 points off 7 of 14 shooting. Uh, BC's struggled with guys from smaller schools. I mean, they struggled against Clarence Daniels, the uh, guy from UNH who had 34 points in that game, I believe it was. And then they struggled against uh, Kellen Tynes of UMaine uh, as well. He had, I believe, 20-plus points against BC when they played. So they struggle against guys that just take over a game and uh, yesterday got a win, though, against a guy, Sims, who had 20 points led the game. So that's a good win for them. Yeah, they need to build some confidence because they're, you know, their schedule is going to be coming all ACC pretty soon. Yep. Um, and we know how tough the conference is. I think, what's Duke coming in? Like in a couple of weeks? A couple of weeks, something? yep. January 7th. It's that day of the Frozen Fenway game uh, at 1 o'clock. Right. Yeah, I'll be calling gonna... that game, actually, on, uh, I think, WZBC's YouTube channel. I'll be calling that game the play-by-play. That'll be, be cool. a thrill. Good. Which will be cool. But yeah, you're right. Once the ACC games come, you're going to have to figure it out. And last year, I think they got, with the ACC tournament, maybe six or seven ACC wins. I think if you get maybe eight to ten this year, that's an improvement. Just keep improving every year, right? That's what you want. Baby steps works. I mean, it took. seemed like we didn't get an ACC win for maybe a year or two, right? Didn't we go like OFA? Yeah. Ofa six? Jim Christian struggled. Yeah, I, I don't blame him, but we just couldn't get over that hump. And then I think... What did we win? Like a few ACC games last year, and then especially in the tournament. We won four, I think, and then two or three in the tournament, right? Or maybe five yep. and then two or three in the tournament. We, we were one one second away from beating Miami. Or in the tournament, I think. From so. going from going into OT with Miami again, yeah. And then, <laughs> there. You're right. So uh, I'm hoping they can, you know, catch fire again in the second half of this season when the real, you know, ACC schedule starts, because it'll be tough. Definitely. And one other thing, you made basketball. You know I'm a big fan of them. They play Ohio State next Wednesday night at Ohio State. Ohio State on the year, number 23 in the country. Very good team, having a great season. Uh, their record overall is pretty strong as well. Uh, so you may have an uphill battle maybe in that game, but uh, I'm going to take you main in that game. Though You know I side them always. Ohio State, though, 7-2 on the year. Powerhouse scoring-wise as well, averaging 79 points per game, only giving up 63 a game. But as you made though, 6-4 on the year. Winning the last two games, beat Merrimack by three on Sunday. They play Akron on Monday night before they go to Ohio State and play them on Wednesday. Uh, I like Ohio State to lose that game against Maine, though. You know, you know I like you, Maine. I know you're a big fan of Maine, but boy, Ohio State's going to be a tough order. Is, is it up there in Ohio yeah, State? Yes, at Ohio State next Wednesday night tough in Columbus. Yeah. That'll be a win for them, even if they can stay in the game, if they can make it a game late. Anything can happen. I mean, they've only lost two games this year, Ohio State. One was to San Diego State, who's 8-3 and three and make the tournament every year. And then Duke, number 12 team in the country, they're 10-2. They lost to Duke by 11 uh, or 9 points. So 
They've had a really good year, 7-2, averaging, as I said, 79 points per game, uh, which is absolutely wild. Uh, and at the end of the day, Maine's going to have, obviously, their work cut out for them. Maine's 6-4, and four, though, in the year. Maybe beat Akron, uh, MAC team, Mid-American Conference team on Monday night. Maybe improve to 7-4 in the year, and then travel to Ohio State. Who knows? I think they can stun them. I think they'll be in the game, at least. I'll say that. Which I'll give a preview of it when I'm home, obviously, next week. That would be uh, when I'm already home and, 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 and done for, you know, obviously, a month. But uh, So I won't be live on the air. I'm giving that prediction. But I think Maine will be in that game. I hope so. We'll be rooting for them. Yeah, no, you know I'm a big fan. Uh, so I'm going to jump in really quick. We talked everything BC-wise, talked a lot of college sports here. One thing I want to jump into is the MLB and the Giants. What, we, what would you rather talk about first? We'll talk about each. We'll talk about the Red Sox. All right, let's talk the Red Sox. Obviously, letting Xander Bogats go. What are your feelings on that? Uh, I mean, 11 years is tough. I mean, I love Bogats. I, 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 I wish he stayed, but again... I wouldn't overpay for anybody, and I think 11 years, because I think we offered him something close, but maybe seven years and maybe a higher average. But, I mean, I don't blame him for turning down 11 years because he's not going to make $26 million a year when he's like 38 years old and batting like 225. So, yeah, happy for him that he got the deal. I wish him all the best. I think the Red Sox, um, they gave him a decent offer, but, uh, you know, they couldn't match the offer from San Diego. Yeah, the Red Sox offered, I think their final deal offer was, let's go to Pete Abraham of the Boston Globe, six years, $162 million overall at $27 million per year. So similar amount of money, just not the years-wise, obviously. Per year, $27 million is just about the same as he got. He got about twenty five and a half, I believe. Um, but he ends up getting $280 million over 11 years rather than one hundred sixty two over six years. So obviously tough losing him, but I think one thing they saw is Marcelo Meyer and Nick York hopefully coming up in the next few years, but that means you throw away the next couple seasons. Uh, and obviously Devers, you got to pay him, but we talked about Bogarts. His home run numbers went down. 2019-33, which are going full seasons. Obviously 2020 skipped here because it's a shortened season. He, I think he had 13 home runs in 2021 and 2020. So 2019-33 home runs. 2021, 23 home runs. 2022, 15 home runs. Home run numbers went down. Yeah, that's that's a bad sign, you know, his power numbers like that. I mean, he's a, he's a class guy. I give him a lot of credit for because when they signed Trevor Story, obviously it was the fact that they had Bogats. They figured they were going to lose him. Mm-hmm. It's going to come in and play shortstop, which I understand that makes a lot of sense, but... um. Uh, they still have holes to fill. I, I like what they did with the bullpen. Yeah, I, I like the Kenley Jansen signing. How do you feel about that? I think it's strong. I think he led the National League in saves, saves. last year. Forty-one. You got him for two years. At- number two of baseball in saves, I believe it was too. Class A of the Guardians had number was number one. And I think the um, the guy they signed too was it Chris Martin. Chris Martin from the Dodgers, really good pitcher as well. Yeah, I think he's a, he's a plus. I mean, because like you said earlier. Our, our bullpen cost so many games last year. It was tragic. You know, it seemed like we blew a save every other game. You're right. That's the problem. I mean, now you have Chris Martin. Probably throw him. I'd imagine the rotation. He's a big guy, six foot eight, two hundred twenty-five pounds. Uh, played sixty games last year out of the bullpen. Probably stay in the bullpen, but uh, the Red Sox do need help in the rotation. I still think you need a fourth or fifth guy, especially considering Evaldi and Walker will be gone. But he'll probably stay in the bullpen. Sixty appearances last year for the Dodgers with a three hundred five ERA. Two saves, 74 strikeouts and 56 innings pitch with a .982 whip. Uh, he's not really a, uh, a starter anyways, but uh, two years, $17.5 million from the Sox is what he got. No, it was a, it was a good pickup. I know Bloom's taking a lot of heat, but um, 
Think about it. These two guys pitch like we think they can. It's going to free up Whitlock to, to join the rotation. That's what it is right there. That's why I said maybe he'd join the rotation. You're right. Whitlock probably be the guy. But maybe even Hauk could join the rotation. I mean, I like what I saw from Cutter Crawford and... Uh, Winkowski. Winkowski, yeah. Those guys showed a lot of problems. Even, even though a lot of those games we were already out of it, they pitched pretty well. So... I, I know they could use, like, Carlos Rodon, who's, who's who's still out there. That's the last guy. That's the last domino to fall, the last big free agent piece out of the Trey Turner and all that sweepstakes left. It's him and Dansby Swanson, but the Red Sox won't be in talks with Dansby, I don't think. That would be huge if they could pull in Rodon or Swanson. But I, I think our rotation, everyone's worried. I know Walker had a, had a great year. I hate to lose him. Ivaldi has been a... a, a a, a, a guy, uh, I admired him a lot from day uh, yeah, one. Yeah, he's been a, a big uh, uh, piece of that Red Sox rotation now. He's been a uh, saving grace for them when everyone's been out. With Chris Sale out for so long and always having injuries besides him, he's been great. But again, you know, we're not going to overpay for anybody. Um, I don't know what they've offered. I know they offered arbitration to... Uh, Evaldi, but it was, you know, like one year at like 19. He's not going to take that. He's he's looking for a multi-year deal, and he can probably make uh, like 25 a year, you know? I mean, he's, he's still a top-of-the-rotation guy. Definitely. I'd agree with you that. I would agree with you that. Um, but that's the thing. So the Red Sox obviously now address the bullpen needs. They still have to probably get another start if they're not going to get Evaldi back, and if they're not going to get Walker back, still have to get another fourth or fifth start. Obviously, Brian Bayo will be in the mix as well just like yeah. Garrett Whitlock will be in the mix, and Hauk. It seems like Hauk and Whitlock are supposed to be both of those guys being in the rotation, it seems like. It's good, yeah. I mean, if we know how good they can pitch. I mean, Whitlock was, was a stud for most of the year till he got hurt, and, and Hauk has amazing stuff. I love Hauk. I, mean, I think Hauk, I said at one point, which might be a little bit off, but at one point I said he could be a Cy Young winner one day with the stuff he has. Maybe that's a little yeah. bit of a stretch. The curveballs, it, it breaks a mile. Hey, he's good. I like him a lot. I like him a lot. Uh... And so hopefully we'll see what happens there with the Red Sox. Uh, one last thing about the Sox, I'm going to ask you: What's their plan with Rafael Devis? How do you feel? Oh, I, I getting, I'm getting bad vibes. I, I see the writing on the wall of maybe a low ball offer. Um, if, if if I'm like Hein Bloom, I'm you know I'm looking at the market. He's a young he's a young guy, Devis. So he's probably going to be looking for ten years at like thirty at least, mm-hmm. right? If he, I think that's a decent offer. I don't. I mean, um, you know, he's not like Aaron Judge yet. He's not Mike Trout. That's the thing. That's what I said earlier. I said I love Zinda. I love Rafael Devis. Don't get me wrong, but if you're going to pick between Bogats, Devis, and Betts, I would have went Betts. I think Betts is that guy. Obviously, a top five player in baseball. Devis isn't that yet. I don't think. Yeah. No. No. He's he's, he's improved his fielding. Um, he's he's certainly not a liability there. He's he's got a decent glove. He's got tremendous power, and he, his average is certainly uh, as you know it's high enough. But if he turns down like thirty something a year for ten years, I'm not blaming the Red Sox for that. I think you he's going to probably get ten years, three hundred twenty-five million. That'll probably be the highest the Sox go. But as of now, though, I mean the last talks they had at least one point before spring training, they offered him like I think twenty a year. It was like ten for two hundred or something, which was nuts. Yeah. Yeah, that low ball off is the same thing they did with um, Xander Bogots. You, you know, I mean, that's just a low ball off. You're hoping they take a hometown discount, but you can't expect these players today to do that. So someone's going to offer him some major money. But I think you're right. Maybe like $32 million a year for 10 years. That, that, that's a good offer for a young guy like him. Definitely. I'd agree with you. And one last thing about the Sox. We had mentioned Rich Hill, obviously still a free agent. He wouldn't be bad to have back in the rotation either. I know me and you both are big fans of him. Uh, he's an innings eater. I mean, he's got... He's got a great curveball. 
Um, I think what he win like about eight games last year. Yeah, and he pitched very well his last four. Last four yeah, starts, right. he played I mean, very he well. Strike guys out with that sweeping curveball. So I, I hope the Red Sox, uh, you know, re-sign him. I, I, I think he's got a little left in the tank. I mean, his fastball is probably about what 85, 86, 87. I mean, yeah. that's that's good enough. He was getting guys out, so um, he, I, I think he would be a good back of the uh, rotation guy. I agree with you there. I'm going to give you some of the stats. His last five games, the Red Sox this past season, two and one record, thirty strikeouts to seven walks, with seven earned runs in twenty six and two thirds innings pitched. The two three six ERA. His last two games were the best two games of the year from a two game stretch. 2-0 record with 15 strikeouts to two walks with eight hits allowed, one earned run at 12 innings pitched, .75 ERA, and a 71% strike percentage. And his last three innings of his last start with the Red Sox, last three innings, 36 strikes and 44 pitches for an 81% strike percentage. So he was locked in his last few games with the Sox. And finished the year, eight wins, seven losses, like you said. You got that right. You drilled it. 109 strikeouts. And a 4.27 ERA and a 1.3 whip. I think he's good to get back in the rotation maybe as a 4 or 5. Why not? 42 years old from Mass. He probably wants to be back, I'd imagine. He's got a lot of fans in this area. And um, I, I hope the Red Sox offer him a contract. Yes. We're both big fans of him. So hopefully he's back, obviously, in a Sox uniform. So one last thing I want to mention. Uh, before well, Maybe we can talk Clippers for a minute, too. But one thing I want to mention, one big thing. Obviously, the Giants, where they stand right now in the season. 7-5-1 record now on the year. I think they're 1-4-1 in the last six games played since they start out the year 6-1. and one. Obviously, things aren't going in the best direction, but I don't think it's uh, really a Dable issue or a Joe Shane issue. I just think the team's injured. And also, I mean, at the end of the day, you're playing the Eagles and the Cowboys two of the last three weeks, and both those teams are very good. Oh, yeah. They're certainly in the toughest part of their schedule with the Eagles twice. Um, but they they have to beat the Washington uh, Washington Command- Saturday, Sunday night Commanders. Yep, have to beat them because what, uh, have they won a divisional game yet? Nope. We are right now currently o two and one. Yeah, so that's like two losses because now you got to if you end up in a tie with with them, you're going to be still you know the tiebreaker goes to them. So it's like three so losses. Be- yeah, it's like o and three. You're right. O three and one with the tie with them. So they they really got to win Sunday. Dave Bowl and Shane has taken a great first step. Very impressive. You're right. Uh, it's, it's 0-3 and 1. You're right. That's what it is. Because we got the Commanders once and then the Eagles one more time. You're right. 0-3 and 1. Too many injuries. Um, you know, uh, Jones has does not have a lot of weapons. Even though the guys that are playing are doing the job. Like that um, Richie James. and Richie James, 761 and a touchdown last week. Isaiah Hodgins, four catches, 38 yards and a touchdown. Touchdown. I mean, that's, I mean people don't, know, don't even know who these people are. And, it's and nuts. Scoring some points, so and I, I know they're going to be in the game against Washington, so they just got to find a way to not tie them and just beat them because I, I know they're as good as them at least. And Daniel Jones is getting hit all game, got sacked seven times. The Giants gave up seven sacks, I think it was four to Daniel Jones, maybe three to Tyrod Taylor. But the Giants had seven sacks allowed in that game. They got four sacks, so the pass rush was getting there at least a little bit. Kayvon Thibodeau and Aziz Ojalari both of them had a pretty good game. Aziz Ojalari had a couple sacks. Zion Gilbert, cornerback, had a, uh, a cornerback blitz, got a uh, sack. Kayvon Thibodeau gets a lot of pressure, and they didn't end the game with a sack. Uh, and then Ryder Anderson had his first sack of his career, I believe. But the Giants got a little bit of pressure on Jalen Hurts, but obviously not enough. I mean, they ended up losing that game no matter what. 48-22 is a big loss. But I don't think it's Daniel Jones' fault. Played pretty well. 18-27 passing, 169 yards and a touchdown. Added in four carries to 26 yards and a touchdown. One thing to worry about, though, Saquon. Nine carries, 28 yards, two catches, 20 yards. Only 48 yards total from Saquon Barkley and 11 touches. 
Yeah, he's he hasn't been the same player the last like four or five games. He's he started out. He had he was like a yardage. Uh, he led the league in yardage from scrimmage. Probably. He did That's from yards from scrimmage. He did about the first ten or eleven games. So now he's going the wrong way, but. You know, I think he could have a bounce back game this week. Uh, you know, he's got to get him in the open spaces. He's got to get to the hole, and then he's explosive. This is what he's done his last four games. Now, his last good game was the game I was at against the Houston Texans. That was the Giants' last win, November thirteenth. And since then, they have lost three games and have had a tie. So the Giants are zero three and one since the last time I was at the game. So obviously a tough stretch of Giants since then. Uh, but the Giants over the last six games now. Right now are one five and one, so or one five and or one four and one. The Giants are so obviously the Giants have to turn around. But part of the Saquon over the last four games has not played well. Totaled fifty three carries over the last four games for one hundred fifty two yards, which is two point eight seven yards per carry. Two rushing touchdowns, thirteen catches of sixty four yards at just four point nine yards per reception, and two uh, receiving touch or two uh, touchdowns overall. He didn't have receiving touchdowns. So has last four games played. 152 rushing yards, 64 receiving yards, and two touchdowns. I mean, you need him to be better than that. You would agree with that, right? Oh, he's your most explosive player. I mean, he can take it to the house anytime he touches the ball, whether it's a pass or a or a run. He's explosive. When he breaks that, you know, first line of containment, he, he could take off. So uh, that hasn't been there the last four weeks. So it's it's time because we we probably won't win if he doesn't have a you know a more productive game. Definitely. And if you look at it, his last four games and rushing totals. 22 yards, 39 yards, 63 yards, 28 yards. You need yeah. it to be better than that. No, I know. That explains uh, uh, why we don't have, have the wins. Um, the offensive line's been struggling. Lewinsky's been struggling a little bit. Evan Neal got beat up a little bit last week. Andrew Thomas got beat up. Uh, there's just a lot of injuries. And at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, we don't really have many receivers or weapons. So when you go to the run game and you're just letting Saquon run the ball 100 times, that's all you have as an option. I mean, teams keen in on that. Yeah, they load in the box there, and then there's the holes aren't there. Um, but they got to find a way to, you know, avoid that. I mean, that, maybe get the ball to him in a screen pass. I don't see enough screen sometimes. Um, you know, even a screen, even a screen pass in the middle of the field. You know, teams don't expect that sometimes. Um, but then regarding the defense, I like the fact that Martindale blitzes more than anybody. Yeah, he does a ton. He doesn't care at all. He just sends. He I sends. Like- and, you know, surprising. And they just got to get home a little more often. I mean, Heineke doesn't have explosive, you know, Justin Fields or Jalen Hurts' uh, getaway speed. But um, if the Giants can just get home in a few sacks, get in Taylor Heineke's head, I, I think we're better than them. And, and I think we can get the win down there in uh, D.C. We tied them a few weeks ago now. It was a 20-20 game, 20-20 to game in overtime, tied them. Uh, now Washington had a bye week, and now they're playing the Giants. So they've... They haven't played anyone since they, you know, that tie. Now they have a bye week, obviously, to get ready, and now they're coming in well-rested. The Giants obviously coming off a tough loss to the Eagles, also losing uh, before losing to tying Washington, lost to the Cowboys. The Giants, last three games, all divisional games, find themselves 0-2-1. So tough stretch there for the Giants. If you look at it, though, this is what the playoff picture looks like. Right now the Giants are the seventh seed in the NFC since the Seattle Seahawks lost to the Carolina Panthers. Sam Donald's old New York Jets uh, quarterback, helped us out there getting a win there over the Seattle Seahawks. But right now, Washington holds the tiebreaker over the Giants in the sixth seed uh, since they've been a division record. But the Giants' last four games, Commanders, Vikings, Colts, Eagles, at Commanders, at Vikings, home versus the Colts, at Eagles. Washington's last four games, at home versus the Giants, 
at the San Francisco 49ers, home versus the Browns, home versus, home versus the Cowboys. So you got to think they'll probably beat the Browns, maybe. And then you got to think they'll probably lose to the Niners and the Cowboys. So the Giants are going to need to win this week, get an edge over them. Yeah, I, I, that was the first time I saw Philadelphia all year, like a full game. And they, they don't have a lot of weaknesses. I mean, they rush the passer well. They, they score points better than anybody. One thing I did notice, I think you can throw all them, even though, you know, despite what Darius Slay and our old buddy Bradbury. James Bradbury. Yeah, the Giants threw the ball pretty well, if Jones had time. Um, but overall, Philadelphia is for real. I think Dallas is for real. So we, you know, we, we have to beat up on Washington to, you know, to get any tiebreaker back. And the Reds, well, the command has got to go to San Francisco. They should lose there. They should lose to Dallas again. So I think hope is there for us to catch, you know, pass them and secure a, a better seed for the playoffs. Definitely. So we'll see what happens, obviously, there. And the Saturdays broke down who's got what left. I'll tell you what the Seattle Seahawks have left. That's another team the Giants have to worry about. Currently, they're the eight seeds are just outside the playoffs since only seven make it. They play the 49ers at home, which is a tough game. Then they yeah. travel to Kansas City, another tough game. Then they play the Jets at home and then the Rams at home. So the really, really easy game there is the Rams at home. With the Jets being a tougher game, they could maybe win, but they shouldn't beat the Chiefs and they shouldn't beat the Niners. So hopefully they lose those two there, and that would help the Giants, obviously. Yeah, I think we can sneak in. So we'll see what happens, obviously. And as for the Patriots, which we'll talk about them really quick before we get back into the Giants, the Patriots right now hold the playoff spot, the seventh seed in the AFC. After beating the Cardinals on Monday Night Football, they take the tiebreaker over the Chargers. The Patriots' last four games at Raiders, home versus the Bengals, home versus the Dolphins, at the Bills. And then if you look at who the Patriots have to compete with, the Jets right now, the nine seeds are two, two, two spots outside of that last playoff spot. The Jets have the Lions left, which is a tough game. The Lions are playing very well right now, 5-1 and one in their last six games. And their only loss was to the uh, Buffalo Bills on Thanksgiving. They almost won that game. So the last six games, the Lions have looked great. They play the Jaguars at home, at Seahawks, at Dolphins. That's for the Jets. And the other team the Patriots have to worry about is the Chargers, which... I mean, that AFC West was supposed to be great this year. If you look at it, the Raiders are 5-8, and eight, the Broncos are 3-10, and 10, the Chargers are 7-6. and six. The Chargers last four games, home versus the Titans, at the Colts, home versus the Rams, at the Broncos. They're the eight seed right now, just outside of that last playoff spot with the Patriots losing on a tiebreaker. How do you feel? Do you think the Patriots get in, or do you think it's the Chargers? I'm so, the first thing I want to mention, I'm, I'm amazed that the AFC West was such a disappointment this year. When, when they signed Russell Wilson... Traded from and signed him, yeah. Right, Devontae Adams goes to the Raiders. Everyone expected this division just to be a shootout, and the only true good team there is, is Kansas City. Um, as far as the Patriots go, I don't see them a playoff team, and I know that they're going to be underdogs probably against Miami, Buffalo. So I, I don't see them winning those two games, and I think they probably got to get to 10 wins. I don't think I don't think they're going to do it. I, I like Mac Jones, but they just don't have enough offensive punch, especially if... Um, both running backs are banged up. I know they like this speedball Marcus Jones, but, you know, he's, he's only going to break one a game, maybe give you a touchdown like he did against Buffalo. And and uh, Mac Jones is just um, – he doesn't seem to have enough time sometimes. Yeah, Marcus Jones, a cornerback. Yeah, he had a touchdown against the uh, against the Bills on that game. I remember that, the Thursday night game, which was odd. He looks lightning quick on both yeah. sides of the – you know, so, Yeah, he's uh, good. No, they, they had him in there and uh, – P.S. Strong, their running back, played pretty well in that Monday night game against uh, Arizona. But you're right, yeah, that AFC West was supposed to be great. 
And there's only one team that's good. It's the Chiefs. The Chargers are seven and six. Chiefs are ten and three. Raiders five and eight. Broncos three and ten after giving up two first round picks. I believe it's a couple seconds, and also giving Russell Wilson, I believe it's two hundred thirty million dollars. So, and they're going to be in trouble. I mean, they're still paying him up to twenty twenty seven and twenty twenty eight. Denver and a team like the Rams, they, they they sold so many draft picks to get the guys they wanted, whether it was Vaughn Miller or in, or in the Jalen Ramsey. Yeah, and uh, Russell Wilson. I mean, Matt so Stafford. Terrible. I wouldn't want to be their front office. They, they lost so many draft picks. They'll never be able to rebuild. And no one's going to want to go to a 3-10 and 10 team. You the know? Rams are 4-9 and nine right now, yeah, so they're out too. They're done. So I mean, if you look at it, yeah, there's a lot of teams that are bad. Look at the NFC South. The Bucks, that was supposed to be an easy cakewalk for them. They're six and seven, only a game up on the Panthers who are five and eight, and the Falcons who are five and eight. I mean, it's, it's just it's a mess. Terrible division. Someone's gonna get in the playoffs because they're gonna win the division and, and host have an five hundred record. And host the playoffs too. Host uh, you know the first round of the wild card. Uh but yeah, how do you feel about that division? Do you think the Bucks still end up pulling that out? Or do you think the Panthers who have won two in a row turn it around? I, I think the Bucks just just because they got Brady, he knows how to win these games down the stretch. But I would love to see them host the Giants in a playoff game. I think our Giants could go in there and beat them. I agree. I think the Giants fully healthy. I think they're the better team. Uh, and then one other division which I'm going to talk about really quick. NFC North, everyone was talking Vikings, Packers before the season. Right now, Vikings are 10 and 3, Lions 6 and 7, Packers 5 and 8. That's another big disappointment. There's just so so many mediocre teams in the NFL that went into this year with high expectations. The Rams they're not good this year. They're four and nine. The Packers are five and eight. The Bucks are six and seven. Then you look at the AFC West. The Broncos are three and ten. The Raiders are five and eight. The Chargers are seven and six. I mean, that's and the Colts are four, eight, and one. That's so many teams that are having bad years that everyone went in with high expectations for. Yeah, we certainly were surprised with Aaron Rodgers kind of falling off the cliff. I mean, we know Devontae Adams left. But we still thought Aaron Rodgers, what did he win, the last two MVP awards? I he think? did. Two time, two in a row. You're right. Uh, Lamar was 2019, the Rodgers 2020 and 2021. So he just fell off the map just like that. And Tom Brady looks like he's 45 now. But I know going into the year, Tampa Bay had lost a couple offensive linemen that people seem to forget. Somebody retired. And Moppet guy. retired. And then uh, Ellie Moppet retired. And they lost right. Ryan Jensen, their center. And then also lost Tristan Wirfs for a little bit, their left tackle to an injury as well, a right tackle. Oh. I, I saw that coming. I didn't see the Rams collapse like this, but once they lost Stafford and Cooper Cup, I mean, uh, forget it. They're going. They're going, they're going nowhere. But we like McVay. McVay's a good coach. Yeah, he's a great coach. Uh, it's I, not I, his I fault. mean, yeah, Super Bowl. Um, I, I wish him luck, but again, they they traded their future away to win this Super Bowl, so they're going to be lousy for a few years, I think. I agree with you there. So yeah, the Patriots. I mean, it's going to be between the Patriots and the Chargers, part of that last playoff spot. Patriots, Chargers. Uh, since the Bengals I mean, are two games up on both those teams, and the Dolphins are a game up, you got to think the Dolphins will probably be the second wild card spot. The Bengals will probably be the first, if not the Ravens. I mean, one of those two, they'll be the first. Uh, so it'll be between the Patriots, Jets, and Chargers for that last wild card spot. And that's why I'm mad about that Raiders loss last week. When the Raiders lost, I believe it was on uh, Thursday Night Football to the Rams, losing that game 17-16. to That's a huge loss to the Raiders. I mean, they would have been you know, just a game behind the Patriots and would have been 6-7. and eight, uh, six and seven. Just a game behind, and they end up losing that game. Now they're five and eight. Now probably kill their playoff spot, playoff chances. When they were playing better over the last three or four games before that. Yeah, you know? I was surprised the Raiders this year. I, I I thought you know once they did get Devontae Adams, they picked up somebody else that was yeah Chandler good. Jones. Chandler Jones. He was a sack leader, maybe a couple. Yeah, he was ago. still really good last year for the Cardinals. He's still good. Didn't do much from this year though. He's not doing anything for them. Big things from them, and 
And now look, you know, they won't even make 500 maybe. No, five and eight. So, I mean, another loss, they'll be under it for the year no matter what. Uh, so, if you had to give you five teams, your five Super Bowl power, power rankings, your five best teams in the NFL, because saying who's going to win the Super Bowl right now is tough. Who's your five best teams? I can go first if you want, or you can go first. It's up to you. My five, not in any particular order. But okay, let's hear it. I, I go Kansas City, Buffalo, and Cincinnati for sure. I don't see anybody else coming out of the AFC but one of those three teams. Okay. And in the NFC, I could give you three, uh, Philadelphia, Dallas, and San Francisco. But um, hopefully, uh, you know, there could be a surprise. But I think those are the six strongest teams in the two conferences. What do you think? I'll go Chiefs number one, which I'll give an order. I mean, I'll give a slight order because it's going to be tough to actually break it down fully. But I'll go Chiefs one. I think they're the best team in all of football. Number two, I'd probably go the Philadelphia Eagles right now. Just tough to say, but they've won four in a row. They're 12-1 and one on the year. Scored 386 points. I mean, it's just nuts. They're 6-1 and one at home, 6-0 and oh on the road. 6-0 on the road's hard to do. I'll probably go Eagles two, which is hard to do. They're having a really good year. Number three, I mean, I know the Buffalo Bills, a lot of people probably have in there. I think the Dolphins, I would take over the Bills, actually, in a playoff game. I'm going to have the Dolphins at three. Maybe a Wilds uh, take there. It's probably a hot take to a lot of people. I like the Dolphins over the Bills. Uh, at four, I'd probably go the Dallas Cowboys. Fifth, maybe the San Francisco 49ers, even though Brock Purdy's their starting quarterback. He's been playing very well for them. But I'm between fifth, I'm between them and the Bengals, really. And then the Bills may be in that mix there, too. But I, I think the Bills are good, but they've won four in a row now. But they had that one stretch there where Josh Allen was struggling. It made me worry a little bit. They've won four in a row, though, so I'm not taking anything away from them. But if I'm going who we think could win the Super Bowl, I think I like the Dolphins team a little more, personally. Yeah, I, I didn't mention them. I, I, I think they got a legitimate chance. But I, 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 was, I was more surprised with Cincinnati. I, a lot of times when you lose the Super Bowl the next year, something's missing. But I think they've won a few games in a row. Five in a row. They were four and four. Now they're nine and four. Yeah, five in a row. So they're getting hot at the right time. I think they're pretty healthy. Jamar Chase is back. T. Higgins is, I think, is he still healthy? He's a little banged up, but he's having a good year. I think he might have missed a little bit of last game, too. But he's been, he's, he's good. So Joe Burrow's had had a great year, which surprised me. So I, I, I think love Burrow. And can take out anybody. Um, I'd like to see Miami do well. But um, uh, I'm going to take Cincinnati or Kansas City probably to come out of there if I narrow it down. And then... Two teams in the NFC, any one of those three I mentioned. But I think Philadelphia is for real. But San Francisco's defense might be the best unit over there. And like you said about Purdy, he played good enough to win. And if uh, Debo should be healthy for the playoffs, Frisco could be a very tough out with that defense. Definitely. I mean, we just named the best teams that we think are best in the NFL. You know what it comes down to? Who's hottest right now? And if you look at it, the Bills have won four in a row. The Ravens have won two in a row. We didn't mention the Ravens. Ravens have won a couple in a row now. The Bengals have won five in a row. So longest win streaks in the NFL. Bengals five in a row. Bills four in a row. In the NFC, the nine is six in a row. Eagles and Cowboys four in a row. So it's impressive. I mean, that, that the, the best teams the best teams get hot at the end of the year, and all five of those teams, six of those teams, are very hot right now. The Bengals yeah. five in a row is impressive. They were four and four now. They're nine and four. Yeah, no, that's a good point to be hot. It's about who's hot, right? I mean, that's what it's all about in the NFL. And the Bengals last four games. At Bucks, at Patriots, versus the Bills at home, versus the Ravens. That's a tough four games there, but I think they could beat the Bucks this week, uh, and then maybe beat the Patriots and the Bills and the Ravens. I mean, it might not mean anything to them anyways if they have the you know fifth seed in the AFC locked up as the first wild card. Who knows? But they're up two games. You know, they're up two games. The wild card over you know the last spot, so they'll make the they'll make it in the playoffs no matter what happens in the last four games. 
it'll be a fun playoff run, that's for sure. Definitely. So we talked everything that, you know, we obviously want to talk, maybe talk Clippers for a second. Uh, big win for the Clippers the other night over the Celts, 20-point win. Uh, Celts did recover last night against the Lakers, almost collapsed, though. But what have you seen from that Celtics team? Obviously, they've been relying on the three-point shot a lot, shooting 40% from the year, which is obviously impressive. But uh, what's that missing piece of Celtics? Is it Robert Williams? You think that takes them to another level? They're already playing great. But when you have a downfall against the Lakers, you obviously miss a guy in the paint that can get you some boards and some big moments. What do you think is going to be that next step of the Celtics? Obviously, they had a great year, only seven losses on the year. They're having a great season. But do you think Robert Williams comes in and that's that big X factor, which makes them be contender favorites over everyone without even any competition? What do you think is missing of that Celtics team? I think it's definitely Robert Williams because they, they seem to still get beat on the glass too many times, too many second-chance points. I think Anthony Davis, they couldn't last night in the down low, right? 37 points, yep. Eight, he went up and... Uh, he was over, tower over everybody. He's not going to do that against Robert Williams. I mean, the guy, he's a shot-blocking uh, machine. Dynam. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think the Celtics are relying on the three ball too much. I said, I think it's a good thing the Celtics are cold from three over the last few games. You get Jason Tatum before last night, his last two games, was three of 20 from three. And I think it was 13 of 41 from the floor, uh, which isn't good. I think the Celtics had to have a game that they got cold because at the end of the day, if they stay hot and they're shooting 47 3 every night, they're just going to think they can just keep shooting 35 43 a game. But I think at the end of the day, you need to find footing in the paint and try to work your way in the paint like they did last year. And that's obviously what helped the Celtics make a run that they could actually dominate in the paint with Robert Williams, obviously Al Horford. I think that this is a good thing the Celtics got a little bit cold because now they have to find their identity in the paint. And once Robert Williams is back, that could be the difference. Yeah, I'm surprised you know, throughout the year that they've taken so many threes and they were hitting most of them. They had a very high percentage. Sam Hauser. They're close to 50%, but like you said, if they go cold, they got to find another way to get points, like in the, in the paint. You know, they got to go in the back. you got to have a guy down low, maybe like a Robert Williams that can give you 10 or 12 points down low in the paint. Definitely. And Sam Hauser, that's your boy. He's been playing great. He's shooting like most of the time, but like when they struggled against Golden State, they weren't making their threes, and they lose by 20. You know? Definitely. Uh, some news that just came out in college football, which I didn't even mention. Uh, UCLA is announced that it will be joining the Big Ten uh, officially. So uh, ESPN wow. just put that out. They approved. Uh, University wow. of California approved. They have moved to the Big Ten. So obviously college football is going to be a lot different uh, in the next few years whenever that obviously comes to be. Um, but you're right. I think the Celtics are missing uh, Robert Williams. How do you feel about that move to the Big Ten? Is it going to kill the Pac-12? You know, it's probably the, the, the first move of other teams that are going to probably want to jump conferences, just like it happened to the, uh, you know, when the Big East, they all started moving, what was it, the Big East to the ACC? Yep, Big East, ACC, Syracuse, BC obviously jumped. Uh, my Pittsburgh move, jumped, Louisville. Then it was Pittsburgh, and the same thing could happen to the Pac-12, which is astounding. I mean, that's a great conference. Uh, those West Coast games late at night on Saturday night, you know, Washington, Washington State. I mean, if UCLA leaves, I mean... Who's next? Could be Utah. I mean, uh, yeah. Any, I mean, the Big Ten is going to be huge. Oregon, and it'll be USC and UCLA probably jumping to the Big Ten, and then maybe Oregon jumps ship. Maybe Arizona jumps ship. I mean, who knows? Uh, some good teams over there football-wise. Washington's really good. I like their quarterback, Michael Penix, a lot. He'll be back for his senior year. Yeah. I'm a big fan of him, which I told you about. Keep your eye on that conference because I, I see the same thing coming that happened to the Big East and that they all the ACC, you know? so Definitely. I think that could happen to me, maybe to the ACC. If Clemson were to jump ship and let's say Florida State, the ACC could go downhill because that's a lot of the money right there, that revenue right there, Florida State's history and how good Clemson's been as of late. I mean, if those two teams left, it'd be tough for those conferences to keep up. If, let's say North Carolina left too. 
It'd be tough for that conference to keep up with the ACC. Yeah, the landscape changes uh, pretty quickly in college football. Definitely. Uh, so one last thing we'll mention. Obviously, we talked everything, uh, Red Sox, football, everything uh, you know overall. But for the Giants, four games left. What do you think they have to do? Do you think they have to go 2-2 two and two to make it in? Yeah, I think they can squeeze a seven or eight seed, um, you know, because once you get past the big three, I mean, I know everyone's hot on the Lions. Um, but they don't scare me. I know they beat my Giants. They still don't scare me. I think we can beat them when it comes to cold weather outdoors. Um, I think mm-hmm. if they can go two and two and secure nine, would it be nine wins? I, I think they can get in nine, seven and one, whatever it is. Um, I, yeah, I, I think I, I think they're, they're better than Indianapolis. I think they're better than Washington. So they, they should secure those two wins, and I, I, I think they're going to get in. I agree with you there. I, I think it'll be interesting, but I think two wins gets them in, and obviously Daniel Jones had a great year. And one last thing to mention about the Giants, Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones, both free agents after this year. Where do you think the Giants go with those two guys? Uh, uh, I, I think they're going to offer Jones a contract. I think they, they were happy with him this year, and I think they think they can win with him, knowing the variables he's had to play with. Saquon, I'm not so sure because um, – he started out so good, I, I and I know his offensive line uh, hasn't been great, um, but I'm not sure they're going to offer him big money enough to keep him here. I think he wants to stay here. He must love New York just like OBJ did before the Giants traded him, but I'm not convinced uh, that the Giants are going to make him an offer. How about you? What do you think about those two? I think Daniel Jones will be back. I think he's been playing very well. I think they like what they've seen from him. I think for Saquon Barkley, though, I agree with you. I think they probably see a lot more holes in this team than a running back. I think they see too many holes, and they say Saquon Barkley, although he's a great player, probably doesn't solve all the issues that we need to fix. I think Saquon Barkley ultimately will be walking in free agency. That's my guess as of now. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I've been impressed with Brightwell. I've been impressed with Breida. Brightwell's our boy. Five carries, 23 yards last week yeah. with a 13-yard rush. You like his burst. He exactly through the hole. He looks he looks faster and quicker than say say Quan does through the hole. You know I don't know about the open field, but he looks as fast as anybody. Bright well. He does. He's a jet. He hits it pretty hard. I, I'm a big fan of him. I'm with you there. He looked great last week, and especially considering say Quan's not looking great, hitting the hole hard. You might as well give him some more carries. Maybe give him eight to ten this week. Yeah, he needs more touches. I, I mean, you can't. You probably won't use him much on the goal line. Saquon's obviously got more power. You need that on the goal line, like a, like a Zeke in Dallas or even a Pollard. They got you know a little more strength than um, Brightwell. Bright, but but I, yeah, I'm I'm thinking Saquon's going to leave, and Brightwell might be the guy. Maybe Breida. I don't know, but they will need a maybe draft a guy. Back. Goal line, yeah, they they need a bigger back on the goal line. I mean, look at Breida's last, uh, not Breida, Brightwell's last two games. He's got carries. The last two games overall, really, uh, he did have two kick returns of 50, 44 yards uh, against Washington. Didn't get a carry in that game. But the last time he got a carry before this past week was Dallas, 5 for 31, which was good, with two catches of 18 yards. So that's 48 or 49 yards yeah. on seven touches, which is pretty good. Seven per touch. Yeah, no, he, he's won me over. This past he, weekend, five catches, yeah. 20, five rushes, 23 yards, and two catches of 18 yards. That's the same 41. They called about nine carries and 28 yards, right? You're right. Yeah, and he did five for 23 on his own with also adding two catches to 18 yards. And Saquon was, I believe, two for 20. So pretty similar. I mean, he's got better per average there. Six yards a carry against Dallas, four, four and a half yards a carry, 4.6 yards per carry against Philly. And both, both D-lines are good. I mean, Philly's D-line's really good. Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham, I mean, just they have a ton of talent. They are very good, yes. A ton of talent. But anything else you want to mention in for the Giants when we close with our – Famous last questions? 
No, I'm just I'm I'm optimistic. I think we're going to get a big win. I love the fact that we're playing Sunday night. You know, marquee matchup. Everyone's going to be watching, and they're going to be impressed with the Giants. Uh, both sides of the ball. I like our kicker. I like our punter. I think we're better than them, and uh, I think we're going to get the win. And uh, we'll start the Christmas week off on a on a high note. Yeah, I think I I agree with you that I like uh I like uh, Gano a lot. He's been really good this year. Uh, one thing though is. About Jamie Gillen, the punter, he had one bad punt last week. We weren't going to win that game anyways. What happened there? That was tough. We're not going to win that game anyways. I mean, I'm not going to really yeah. call that against right. him. We were going to lose. I mean, punting wasn't the reason we lost that game. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, but that was a shocker there when he just lost the ball somewhere. <laughs> and I like this, actually, a good point about the Giants. Uh, a guy who's a YouTuber, uh, he's called uh, The Entertainer is what he called himself on his YouTube page. Uh, but he does a lot of Giants talk, really good uh, podcaster. He said he has all the times that Daniel Jones doesn't make his wide receivers better. Darius Slayton's averaging 61 yards a game with a 1,037-yard total over 17-game average. Isaiah Hodgins has two catches, two touchdown catches in five games on pace of seven over a 17-game schedule, and both those guys are former fifth- and sixth-round picks with Slayton almost being cut during the offseason and Hodgins being a practice squad player in the Bills up until five weeks ago. Look, if you give Jones like Tyree Kill and uh, Waddle, or if you give him Travis Kelsey, I mean, his numbers would be so much better. I mean, he's throwing the guys that nobody knows. He's, I, you know, we've been big Daniel Jones fans. I mean, he, he's accurate. He's got great mobility. You know, he can be my quarterback going forward. And one thing this guy pointed out too, that's great. Daniel Jones, I believe, is zero and eight now in primetime games. He pointed out why Daniel Jones and that stats ridiculous. He played against the Bucks and the Chiefs last year. I mean, what can you do? You know what I mean? In 2020, with yeah, the... Both games. Didn't the Chiefs beat us by a field goal out in Kansas? Yeah, they beat us, and we had a pickoff. Donnie Holmes had a pickoff, and I believe someone was offsides. Yeah, right. Someone right, was offsides right. last year, and they got it back. Uh, unfortunately, Donnie had a pickoff about three minutes ago that would have won us the game, probably. So against the Bucks and Chiefs last year, they were heavy underdogs against the Chiefs, lost the game even though the Chiefs are struggling. The Bucks were in that game, end up still losing them, I think, a couple touchdowns. The Bucs in 2020, they were huge underdogs. The year the Bucs won the Super Bowl, and they were great. Last, last year against Washington on Thursday Night Football on September 16th, week two of the season, 50-50 game. Jones played very well. Probably the best game of his career. Four touchdowns. Would have had 450 yards total if they didn't take back a 50-yard rushing touchdown he had on a holding call. And also Slayton dropped a 50-yard touchdown as well. I mean, Daniel Jones could have had 500 yards in that game. Right, right. Then right. week one against the Steelers in 2020, uh, Monday Night Football, huge underdog in that game. Then his rookie year against the Patriots on Thursday Night Football, huge underdog. And then Cowboys rookie year, huge underdog in Monday Night Football. And they were in both of those games a little bit for most part. I mean, the Patriots game ended up losing by three touchdowns. But it was a seven-point game with nine minutes to go before we had a fumble on our offense, return for touchdown by Patriots to put them up 14. I mean, that's a great point. Yes, you can be 0 of 8 in primetime games. Eight of those games right there, all eight. I mean, you can't blame Daniel Jones. He played good in, in most of those. I don't buy that statistic. I, I know that it is what it is, but... It doesn't mean anything going in against Washington on Sunday night. I think we're the better team, and, and Jones will prove it. I agree with you. So that's our last uh, for the Giants takes. Anything you just want to add in, though? No, I'm ready to go. I can't wait right. to kick Sunday night. And one last thing, as we always do, we always mention uh, you know just the last few questions, obviously with the Christmas season uh, being upon us now with Christmas almost a week away now, 10 days away uh, from Christmas Eve. We can do top Christmas movies or... Maybe the best Christmas song. Maybe the uh, top Christmas songs might be tough to name, you know, three of them. But you can think of maybe your favorite Christmas song, number one, and maybe your top three Christmas movies. 
Yeah, you're right. It's a good time. Give me a second to think. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll give mine to start. My number one Christmas song, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. I think it's unmatched. I think it's the best one. I don't think anything's really close. I like Last Christmas by Wham. That's probably my number two. Uh, and then my number three, that's a tough one. I know you like Step, in, uh, Step Into Christmas by Elton John. You're a big fan of that song, I know. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. I like Cold December Night by Michael Bublé. I think that's a really good song. So I guess I just named four. But uh, if you have anything off the top of your head, you can think for a second if you don't. But what do you got? I, I would say Bruce Springsteen, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It's always been my number one since it came out probably like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be number one. I, I agree. Last Christmas is good. Um, Step into Christmas. That's one of my favorites. There's, there's a couple of quiet ones that don't get a lot of plays, like uh, the Kinks did Father Christmas and and Emerson, Lake, and Palm. These are going back to like the 70s and 80s, back in my wheelhouse days. Mm-hmm. But um, they had they had some rocking good Christmas songs. But um, Christmas movies, they I mean they all seem to be funny. I mean mm-hmm. I I, don't, I wouldn't pick a movie like Die Hard, even though it would be a Christmas movie. But I think a Christmas I want funny movies like um, you know Home Alone. Was oh, was here. a and um, Christmas Vacation? I think was great. Those are good ones. Elf can't forget Elf. Elf, I think you hit it right. Elf, Elf's probably number one. Elf's one probably. I like probably Home Alone, then Elf, then Home Alone two. That's probably my top three. There's a lot of good ones. I mean, like we've watched a million of them, right? Yeah, Brown Christmas, all of those. Christmas with the Cranks. Oh, The Grinch. The Grinch. Can't forget The Grinch. Grinch is a good one. Yeah, right, I'll probably no. go. I think uh, Elf. I'll probably go Home Alone one. The Grinch 2, Elf 3. What do you got? I would go Elf number 1, Home Alone number 2, and Christmas Vacation number 3. Okay, I respect that. And then for Christmas songs, you already gave yours. And one thing we didn't mention, Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. It's a really good song there. Uh, There's a lot of good Christmas songs. That's a good one. Jingle Bells by Frank Sinatra, really good. It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year I like a lot too. Winter Wonderland, Bing Crosby. I mean, there's a lot of good ones, right? You too had one, uh, Please Come Home for Christmas, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard that one, of course. That's a good one by you too, yes. Um, and then uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, too. Uh, I can't forget yeah. that one. Little St. Nick by, uh, who was that by? The Beach Boys, that? The Beach Boys, that's right. That's one of our favorites, the Yeah, Beach I'd probably Boys. say that's in my top, for sure. That's a really good song. Little St. Nick, that's a great song. We used to listen to that a lot, so it's a good yeah. one. Um, but anyways, I don't want to hold you on too long. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you come on and talk sports. That's where I get my passion from. So thank you. All right, Joe. We'll uh, finish up the semester strong, and we can't wait to have you come home again. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Right, thank you. You too. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye. So it's great to have Paul from Southie come on. The Boston Sports Encyclopedia, the historian, come on and give his thoughts on the Red Sox, Celtics, even talk a little Patriots as well, Giants. College football, college basketball. We talk to everything. It's a great thing when he comes on and we can just talk all sports, uh, which is very much uh, enjoyable and and, and a great time. So thank you so much for coming on, Paul. That's where I get my passion of sports from. All comes from him. So thank you so much uh, for everything you did for me growing up, giving me my passion of sports that I have now. Uh, Anyways, that does conclude today's episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. I hopefully will have another episode before I leave. Um, I do have a couple things this week. I have a final on Friday. I have a paper due Friday. I have another paper due tomorrow. So paper tomorrow, due, a paper due Friday, and then an exam Friday. And then my class that I was taking, a sports journalism class, 
with the Red Sox beat writer that I'm friends with, Chris Cotillo. have a portfolio due for him on Monday. So I'll still be here up until at least Monday. So maybe I'll do something Monday night. Uh, who knows? I'll keep you guys posted on that. But I'll definitely be in the studio at least one more time uh, before I call it a semester and I'm home for winter break. But if not, in case I'm not, uh, back on. Uh, thank you guys so much as always for listening. This whole semester has been a blast. I appreciate you guys always taking the time to listen in. Uh, number one fan of the whole show, Tim Loftus and the whole Loftus family. Thank you guys always so much for listening. Auntie Lisa, truly appreciate you always listening in. The whole Keith family, thank you so much. The O'Malley family, thank you guys always for listening. My whole family as well. Uh, from the sports guru, Mike Curley, Paul, the sports encyclopedia, uh, and to everyone that's come on, the sports aficionado, I mean, everyone's come on giving me their thoughts and takes. Thank you guys so much for always coming on and coming into the studio. Uh, I had the sports, uh, or the, who was it, the King of Dorchester? That's James Hosey's nickname in the studio at one point. Uh, the legend, Mark Walsh, and then also Cap Curley as well in the studio at one point as well. So this semester's been a blast. Hopefully I'll be in here one more time for the end of the semester. But if not, thank you guys so much for always listening in. It does mean a lot to me and I appreciate it. So just one more time, the O'Malley family, Auntie Lisa, the Keith family, and the Loftus family, thank you guys so much for always listening in. It does mean a lot to me. And hopefully I'll be back on one more time before the semester's over. And thank you to all my family as well. You guys always taking the time to listen. It uh, does mean the world to me. So thank you guys. If I'm not on again, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. Hopefully everyone gets home safe and has a great uh, Christmas time and, and holiday season uh, with their family. Thank you guys, as always, for listening in. I appreciate it. And I hope you guys have a good one. Thank you.